Orthodox Psychotherapy, the Science of the Fathers. By Metropolitan of Nafpaktos, Hirotheus Vlakos, translated by Esther Williams, as published by Birth of the Theotokos Monastery, Levadia, Greece, 1995. Translator's Note Before embarking on this study, the reader is asked to observe a few Greek terms for which there is no English word that would not be imprecise or misleading. Chief among these is nous, which refers to the eye of the heart and is often translated as mind or intellect. Here we keep the Greek word nous throughout. The adjective related to it is noetic. Another pair of words, praxis, action, and theoria, vision, generally refer in the patristic writings to ascetic practice and the vision of God respectively. The use of contemplation for theoria has been avoided. Nipsis is the kind of sober-minded vigilance that characterizes the ascetic life of the fathers. It is usually translated as watchfulness. The adjective is niptic. Hezekiah means stillness, and the practice of stillness in the presence of God is called hezekism. I could not have undertaken this work without the help of the English translation of three volumes of the Greek Philokalia. In the bibliography and in the footnotes to our author's rich offering of quotations, I have indicated these and other published translations of which I made use, sometimes altering the wording. I have also found helpful the many translations into modern Greek which are increasingly making their appearance. I gratefully acknowledge the encouragement, help, and advice given by the author and by Miss Afi Mavrumakali, who has translated some of his other books into English. I hope very much that if there are any mistakes, I will be forgiven and told about them so that they may be corrected in the future. Signed, Esther Williams, Queensway, London. Preface to the English Edition At the beginning of this year, Mrs. Esther Williams of England presented me with an English translation of my book Orthodox Psychotherapy, which she said just finished. I was indeed greatly surprised that a person unknown to me would show such an interest in the subject of this book and would engage herself in translation of it with admirable diligence and commitment. I feel the need to thank her deeply and pray to God to give her strength, to illumine her, and grant her every perfect gift. It should be noted that with its first publication in Greece in 1986, Orthodox Psychotherapy gave rise to many discussions which result in the publication of three other books, all relevant in content. One of them has already been translated into English under the title The Illness and Cure of the Soul in Orthodox Tradition. Yet it is this first book that contains the important message that the Church can heal an ailing personality. The term Orthodox Psychotherapy does not refer to specific cases of people suffering from psychological problems of neurosis. Rather, it refers to all people. According to Orthodox tradition, after Adam's fall, man became ill. His noose was darkened and lost communion with God. Death entered into the person's being and caused many anthropological, social, and even ecological problems. In the tragedy of his fall, Man maintained the image of God within him, but lost completely the likeness of him, since his communion with God was disrupted. However, the incarnation of Christ and the work of the Church aim at enabling the person to attain to the likeness of God, that is, to re-establish communion with God. This passageway from a fallen state 
to divinization is called the healing of the person because it is connected with his return from a state of being contrary to nature to that of a state according to nature and above nature. By adhering to orthodox therapeutic treatment as conceived by the Holy Fathers of the Church, man can cope successfully with the thoughts, logismo, and thus solve his problems completely and comprehensively. I would like to re-emphasize that the diagnoses of all neurotic and pathological states are not the subject of this book, for they belong to the domain of psychiatry and neurology. On the other hand, many psychological illnesses are caused by the anxiety of death, the lack of meaning in life, a guilty conscience, and the loss of communion with God on man's part. Surely, the theology of the Church can help by either preventing or by healing people suffering from such existential dilemmas. Thus, psychiatry and neurology are called to cure pathological anomalies, whereas orthodox theology cures the deeper causes that engender them. The reader of this book will find in it the pathway by which a person arrives at communion with God, thus fulfilling the destiny of human existence, as well as the method by which he can even protect himself from various physical illnesses. Orthodox psychotherapy will therefore be more helpful to those who want to solve their existential problems, those who have realized that their noose has been darkened, and for this reason they must be delivered from the tyranny of the passions and thoughts, logismo, in order to attain to the illumination of their noose and communion with God. All this therapeutic treatment or psychotherapy is closely connected with the niptic tradition of the Church and its hesychistic life, as it is preserved in the texts of the Philokalia, in the works of the Fathers of the Church, and notably in the teaching of St. Gregory Palamas. Certainly, one should not disregard the fact that the niptic and hesychistic life is the same life which one sees in the life of the prophets and the apostles, as is described precisely in the text of Holy Scripture. It will be made clear in the analysis of the chapters in this book that the niptic life is in fact the life of the Gospels. I am pleased that this book will be read by an English-speaking audience, because I feel that the niptic and ascetic life has also existed in the Western world before it was substituted by scholastic theology. Scholasticism, indeed, connected knowledge with reason and has created serious problems when one considers that knowledge refers to the whole of human existence and is not simply exhausted by reason. I believe that the greatest problem of Western philosophy is that it, it identifies the noose with reason and intellectual knowledge with existential knowledge. Even contemporary scholars in the West point to this fact. In truth, the niptic tradition is the common tradition of both the East and the West before the intrusion of scholasticism and the identification of theology with metaphysics. And it is this tradition which fully calms man's spirit which seeks fulfillment, inner peace, and stillness. Within the turmoil and pain of today's world which distresses us and torments us, and and which forsakes us to real hunger and thirst, it is necessary that we find and live this therapeutic way. As recommended to us by the Holy Fathers of the Church, it creates spiritual and solves the existential, social, and ecological problems. Surely the Holy Fathers of the Church preceded contemporary psychologists and psychiatrists. Persons who have been healed are the evidence that the Church intervenes in society in a salvific way. It is precisely this great purpose which the Orthodox Church serves through her theology and life.
signed Archimandridi Hierotheus S. Velakos. Author's Prologue Contemporary man, tired and discouraged by the various problems which torment him, is looking for rest and refreshment. Basically, he is seeking the cure for his soul, as it is mainly there that he feels the problem. He is going through a mental depression. For this reason, psychiatric explanations are circulating broadly in our time. Psychotherapy in particular is widespread. While these things were almost unknown before, they are horribly prevalent now, and many people are turning to psychotherapists to find peace and comfort. For I repeat, contemporary man feels that he is in need of healing. Along with realizing this fundamental need, I notice every day that Christianity, and especially Orthodoxy, which preserves the very essence of Christianity, is making much use of psychotherapy, or rather that Orthodoxy is mainly a therapeutic science. Every means that it employs, and indeed its very aim, is to heal man and guide him to God. For in order to attain communion with God and achieve the blessed state of divinization or theosis, we must first be healed. So, beyond all other interpretations, orthodoxy is mainly a therapeutic science and treatment. It differs clearly from other psychiatric methods because it is not anthropocentric, but theanthropocentric, and because it does, it does not do its work with human methods, but with the help and energy of divine grace, essentially through the synergy of divine and human volition. I have wanted to emphasize certain truths in this book. I have wished to point out the essence of Christianity and also the method which it employs for achieving this healing. My basic aim is to help contemporary man to find his cure within the Orthodox Church, as we too are struggling to attain it. I realize that we are all sick and seeking the physician. We are all, we are all ill and seeking a cure. The Orthodox Church is the inn and the hospital in which every sick and distressed person can be cured. If this book becomes the occasion for some people to turn for their healing to the Church and to its teaching, I will praise God who gave me the inspiration and strength to carry out this difficult undertaking, and I will ask Him to have mercy on me for my many weaknesses. Signed, Archimandridi Hirotheus S. Vlakos, written in Edessa on September 30, 1987, the day of the holy martyr Gregory the Enlightener, Bishop of Great Armenia. Introduction I feel it is my duty to give a few basic explanations for the study and the undertaking of the chapters which follow. The title Orthodox Psychotherapy has been given to the book as a whole because it presents the teachings of the Fathers on curing the soul. I know that the term psychotherapy is almost modern and is used by many psychiatrists to indicate the method which they follow for curing neurotics. But since many psychiatrists do not know the Church's teaching or do not wish to apply it, and since their anthropology is very different from the anthropology and soteriology of the Fathers, in using the term psychotherapy, I have not made use of their views. It would have been very easy at some points to set out their views, some of which agree with the teaching of the Fathers, and others of which are in conflict with it, and to make the necessary comments, but I, but I did not wish to do that. I thought that it would be better to follow the teaching of the Church through the Fathers without mingling them together. Therefore, I have prefixed the word orthodox to the word psychotherapy, or the healing of the soul, to make the title 
orthodox psychotherapy. It could also have been formulated as orthodox therapeutic treatment. Many teachings of the fathers are cited with their references to support the text as it develops. I am well aware that texts containing a large number of references are not easy to read. However, I preferred this safer method rather than making the study easy to read. Unfortunately, books nowadays are often read in a sentimental way, and I did not wish this subject, so crucial today, to be written in that way. We have made use of many fathers in developing the subject, most of all the so-called niptic fathers, without, of course, overlooking the so-called social ones. I say so-called because I do not believe that this distinction exists in essence. In Orthodox theology, those called niptics are eminently social, and those called social are essentially niptic. The three hierarchs, for example, lived a watchful, ascetic life. They purified their minds, and thus they shepherd the people of God. I believe firmly that the social quality of the saints is a dimension of asceticism. There is a great deal of niptic teaching in the works of the three hierarchs, but I have made greater use of the fathers of the Philokalia, since they have abundant material, and since the Philokalia is a collection of mystical theological texts, and constitutes a highly inspired effulgence of the hallowed ascetic experience of divine patristic figures on whom shone the holy and life-giving spirit. Quote from the Greek Philokalia 1, Editor's Prologue. According to the editors of the Greek edition of the Philokalia, after the cessation of the hesychistic conflicts of the 14th century, the need arose for a collection of the principal works of the fathers concerning hesychistic life and noetic prayer. They wrote, quote, There is every indication that the collection was made by highly spiritual monks of Manathos from the Library of the Holy Mountain and begun in the second half of the 14th century from 1350 on. This period coincides with the cessation of the famous hesychistic controversies. Concretely, it ends with the triumphant synodic justification of the Athenite fathers. At that time, it had become clear that there was need of a statement of the view of the Eastern Orthodox fathers concerning hesychistic asceticism and noetic prayer. These had been a target of rationalizing and socially active Roman Catholicism with the appearance of the slanderous monk Barlam from Calabria, afterwards a bishop of the Roman Catholic Church. End quote. The final elaboration of the text of the Philokalia was made by St. Macarios, former bishop of Corinth, and St. Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain. And so, quote, the Philokalia, in a way, takes on the dimensions of a synodial presentation of the mystical theology of the Eastern Orthodox Church. End quote. For this reason, the texts of the fathers of the Philokalia have been used with a view to describing and presenting the Church's teaching about the illness and cure of the soul, noose, heart, and thoughts. However, where there was need, I have not hesitated to turn to the texts of other great fathers, such as St. Gregory the Theologian, St. Gregory Palamas, especially his triads, St. John Chrysostom, St. Basil the Great, St. Simeon the New Theologian, and so on. It is true that there is not a special chapter devoted to the sacraments of Holy Baptism and Holy Communion. In many places, the great value of the sacramental life of our Church is emphasized. However, there is no special word about baptism, 
because I know that I am speaking to people who have already been baptized, and so there's presumably no need for it. On the other hand, the sacrament of the Divine Eucharist is the center of the spiritual and sacramental life of the Church. Holy Communion is what differentiates the asceticism of the Orthodox Church from all other asceticism. I regard it as very necessary for man's spiritual life and for his salvation. But preparation is needed in order to be able worthily to have communion of the body and blood of Christ. For Holy Communion, according to the liturgical prayers, is for those who are prepared a light which enlightens, and for those not prepared, it is a consuming fire. The Apostle Paul says, quote, Whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a man examine himself, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. 1 Corinthians 11, 27-30 We are living in a time when much is being said about ecclesiology, Eucharistiology, and eschatology. We have no objection to this. We believe that these are the essential elements of the spiritual life. But the Church, the Holy Eucharist, and eschatology are closely connected with the ascetic life. I firmly believe that priority must be given to the subject of the ascetic life, which is the path of preparation for Holy Communion. And because this aspect is being disregarded, it has been necessary to give special emphasis to these matters. Holy Communion helps to cure if all the other religious treatment, which is the basis of Orthodox asceticism, is followed. Much is being said today about psychological problems. I believe that the so-called psychological problems are mainly problems of thoughts, a darkened mind, and an impure heart. The impure heart, as described by the Fathers, the dark and gloomy mind and impure thoughts are the source of all the so-called psychological problems. When a man is inwardly healed, when he has discovered the place of his heart, when he has purified the noetic part of his soul and freed his intelligence, he has no psychological problems. He lives in the blessed and undisturbed peace of Christ. We say these things with the, with the reservation that the body, of course, can be made sick by fatigue, exhaustion, weakening, and decay. The first chapter entitled Orthodoxy as a Therapeutic Science, can be characterized as a summary of the whole book. In fact, it includes the main points in all the chapters. I confess that the third chapter, entitled Orthodox Psychotherapy, is difficult in some places. I could not avoid this because I had to analyze the terms soul, noose, heart, and intelligence and consider their interrelationships and differences. A seventh chapter entitled Noetic Prayer as a Method of Healing, could perhaps have been written. But since there were places in all the chapters in which the value and necessity of prayer were emphasized, especially in the chapter on Hezekiah as a method of therapy, and since there are excellent books describing the method and value of noetic prayer, I have preferred not to include this chapter in spite of the original intention. I recommend a study of other books which are in circulation. I would ask that this book be not only read, but also studied. It might need to be studied for a second and third time, with the particular purpose of being applied. May the Holy Fathers whose teaching is presented here enlighten both me and the readers, so that we may proceed on the path of the healing and salvation of our souls. I sincerely ask that any mistakes which I have made should be corrected, 
and that they should not do harm to the souls of the readers, since these chapters were written in order to help and not to harm. Likewise, I beg the readers who find any mistakes to let me know so that they can be corrected. In conclusion, I would like to thank all who have helped with this publication. The benefit which may result will be due them as well. May the Lord grant them their heart's desire. Signed, Archimandridi, Herothius S. Vlachos. Chapter 1. Orthodoxy as a Therapeutic Science Many interpretations of Christianity have been formulated, and many answers given to the questions, what is Christianity, and what is its mission in the world? Most are not true. In what follows, we shall seek to make it quite clear that Christianity, and especially orthodoxy, is therapy. We shall also try to describe what therapy is, and how is it, how it is attained. Section 1. What Christianity is Many people interpreting the character of Christianity see it as one of the numerous philosophies and religions known from antiquity. Certainly Christianity is not a philosophy in the sense that prevails today. Philosophy sets up a system of thought which in most cases bears no relationship to life. The main difference between Christianity and philosophy is that the latter is human thinking, while Christianity is a revelation of, of God. It is not a discovery by man, but a revelation by God himself to man. It was impossible for human logic to find the truths of Christianity. Where the human word was powerless, there came the divine human word, or Christ the God-man, the Anthropos, the word of God. This divine revelation was formulated in the philosophical terms of the time, but again it must be emphasized that it is not a philosophy. The garments of the divine human word are taken from the philosophy of that time. St. John Chrysostom, interpreting Isaiah chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, takes away from Jerusalem and from Judah the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner. observes, he seems here to be calling a diviner, a person who is capable of conjecturing the future, through profound intelligence and experience of things. Divining and prophesying are indeed two different things. The prophet, setting self aside, speaks under divine inspiration. The diviner, for his part, starts from what has already happened, puts his own intelligence to work and foresees many future events, as an intelligent person normally does. But the difference between them is great. It is the distance that separates human intelligence from divine grace, from the commentary on Isaiah, from St. John Chrysostom. Returning to the text, so speculation or philosophy is one thing, and prophecy or the word of the prophet who theolog theolo theologizes is another. The former is a human activity while the latter is a revelation of the Holy Spirit. In the patristic writings, especially in the teachings of St. Maximus, philosophy is referred to as the beginning of the spiritual life. However, he used the term practical philosophy to mean cleansing the heart from passions, which really is the first stage of the soul's journey towards God. Yet Christianity cannot be regarded as a religion, at least not as religion presents itself today. God is usually visualized as dwelling in heaven and directing human history from there. He is extremely exacting, seeking satisfaction from man who has fallen to earth in his sickness and weakness.
there is a wall of separation between God and man. This has to be surmounted by man, and religion is the very effective help. Various religious rites are employed for this purpose. According to another view, man feels powerless in the universe and needs a mighty God to help him in his weakness. In this view, God does not create man, but man creates God. Again, religion is conceived as man's relationship to the absolute God, that is to say the relationship of the I to the absolute thou. Yet again, many regard religion as a means whereby the people are deluded into transferring their hopes to the future life. In this way, strong powers put pressure on the people by means of religion. But Christianity is something higher than these interpretations and theories. It cannot be contained within the usual conception and definition of religion given in the natural religions. God is not the absolute thou, but a living person who is in organic communion with man. Moreover, Christianity does, does not simply transfer the problem to the future or await the delight of the kingdom of heaven after history and after the end of time. In Christianity, the future is lived in the present and the kingdom of God begins in this life. According to the patristic interpretation, the kingdom of God is the grace of the triune God. It is the vision of the uncreated light. We Orthodox are not waiting for the end of history and the end of time, but living but through living in Christ, we are running to meet the end of history and thus already living the life expected after the second coming. St. Simeon, the new theologian, says that he who has seen the uncreated light and united with God is not awaiting the second coming of the Lord, but living it. So the eternal embraces us at every moment of time. Therefore, past, present, and future are essentially lived in one unbroken unity. This is so-called condensed time. Thus orthodoxy cannot be characterized as the opium of the people, precisely because it does not postpone the problem. It offers life, transforms biological life, sanctifies and transforms societies. Where orthodoxy is lived in the right way and in the Holy Spirit, it is a communion of God and men, of heavenly and earthly, of the living and the dead. In this communion, all the problems which present themselves in our life are truly resolved. Yet, since the membership of the Church includes sick people and beginners in the spiritual life, it is to be expected that some of them understand Christianity as religion in the sense referred to above. Moreover, the spiritual life is a dynamic journey. It begins with baptism, which is purification of the image, and continues through ascetic living aimed at attaining likeness, which is to say communion with God. Anyway, it must be made clear that even when we still speak of Christianity as a religion, we must do it with certain necessary presuppositions. The first is that Christianity is mainly a church. Church means body of Christ. There are many places in the New Testament where Christianity is called the church. We shall only mention Christ's words, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, and the words of the Apostle Paul to the Colossians, and he is the head of the body, the church chapter 1, verse 18, and to the disciple Timothy, so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. 1 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 15. This means that Christ does not simply dwell in heaven and direct history and, and the lives of men from there, but he is united with us. He assumed human nature and deified it. Thus, in Christ deified human nature is at the right hand of the Father, 
So Christ is our life, and we are members of Christ. The second presupposition is that the aim of the Christian is to attain the blessed state of deification or theosis. Deification is identical with likeness, that is, to be like God. However, in order to reach the likeness, to attain to the vision of God, and for this vision not to be a consuming fire, but a life-giving light, purification must previously have taken place. This purification and healing is the church's work. When the Christian participates in worship without undergoing life-giving purification, and moreover these acts of worship also aim towards man's purification, then he is not really living within the church. Christianity without purification is utopia. So when we are being purified, especially when we are seeing to our healing, we can speak of religion. And this accords with the words of the Lord's brother James, if anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. The book of James, chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. This abstinence gives us the right to claim that Christianity is neither philosophy, nor natural religion, but mainly healing. It is the healing of a person's passions so that he may attain communion and union with God. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Lord showed us several truths. As soon as the Samaritan saw the man who had fallen among thieves, who had wounded him and left him half dead, he had compassion on him and went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him, and set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. Luke chapter 10, verse 33 and following. Christ treated the wounded man and brought him to the inn, to the hospital which is the church. Here Christ is presented as a physician who heals man's illnesses and the church as a hospital. It is very characteristic that in analyzing this parable, St. John Chrysostom presents the truths which we have just emphasized. Man went down from the heavenly state to the state of the devil's deception, and he fell among thieves, that is, the devil, and the hostile powers. The wounds which he sustained are the various sins. As David said, My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. Psalm 38, verse 5. For every sin brings bruises and wounds. The Samaritan is Christ himself, who came down from heaven to earth to heal wounded man, he used wine and oil for the wounds. That is to say, by mixing the Holy Spirit with his blood, he brought life to man. According to another interpretation, oil brings the comforting word, wine provides the astringent lotion, the instruction which brings concentration to the scattered mind. He set him upon his own animal. Taking flesh upon his own divine sh shoulders, he lifted it towards the Father in heaven. Thereupon the good Samaritan Christ led the man into the wonderful and spacious inn, this universal church. He gave him to the innkeeper, who is the Apostle Paul, and through Paul to the high priests and teachers and ministers of each church, saying, Take care of the people of the Gentiles whom I have given to you in the church. Since men are sick, wounded by sin, heal them, putting on them a stone plaster, that is, the prophetic sayings and the gospel teachings, making them whole, through the admonitions and exhortations of the Old and New Testaments. So according to St. John Chrysostom, 
Paul is the one who upholds the churches of God and heals all men through spiritual admonitions, distributing the bread of offering to each one. In St. John Chrysostom's interpretation of this parable, it is clearly evident that the church is a hospital which heals those sick with sin, while the bishops and the priests, like the Apostle Paul, are the healers of the people of God. These truths also appear in many other places in the New Testament. The Lord said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Matthew chapter 9, verse 12. Likewise, Christ, as a physician of souls and bodies, was healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases among the people. And they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. Matthew 4.23 The Apostle Paul is well aware that the conscience of man, especially of simple ones, is weak. When you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. 1 Corinthians 8.12 The book of Revelation says that John the Evangelist saw a river of the water of life proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. On either side of the river was the tree of life, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Revelation 22.1 So the work of the church is therapeutic. It seeks to heal men's sicknesses, mainly those of the soul which torment them. This is the basic teaching of the New Testament of the fathers and of the fathers of the church. And what follows in this chapter as well as in other chapters, many passages from the fathers will bring out this truth. Here again, I want to emphasize the indispensability of the church. I am very grateful to the priest and professor John Romanides for laying stress on this in his writings. I am convinced that he is very well read in the Niptic Fathers, especially in the writings contained in the Philokalia, and has therefore grasped the real meaning of Christianity. I believe that this is a great contribution. For in this era, when Christianity is being presented as a philosophy or intellectual theology, or a culture and popular tradition, customs and manners, he presents this teaching about a therapeutic discipline and treatment. Concretely, he says, quote, Having faith in Christ without undergoing healing in Christ is not faith at all. Here is the same contradiction that we find when a sick person who has great confidence in his doctor never carries out the treatment which he recommends. If Judaism and its successor, Christianity, had appeared in the 20th century for the first time, they would most likely have been characterized not as religions, but as medical sciences related to psychiatry. They would have had a wide influence on society, owing to their considerable successes in healing the ills of the partially functioning personality. In no way can prophetic Judaism and Christianity be construed as religions that use various magical methods and beliefs to promise escape from a supposed world of matter and evil or hypocrisy into a supposed world, spiritual world, of security and success. End of quote from Father John Romanides' work, Jesus Christ, the Life of the World. Returning to the text, in another work, the same professor says, The patristic tradition is neither a social philosophy nor an ethical system, nor is it a religious dogmatism. It is a therapeutic treatment. In this respect, closely resembles medicine, especially psychiatry. The spiritual energy of the soul that preys unceasingly in the heart is a physiological instrument 
which everyone has and which requires healing. Neither philosophy nor any of the known positive or social sciences is capable of healing this instrument that can only be done through the Father's niptic and ascetic teaching. Therefore, those who are not healed usually do not even know of the existence, existence of this instrument. End of quote. So, in the church we are divided into the sick, those undergoing therapeutic treatment, and those saints who have already been healed. Quote, the fathers do not characterize people as moral or immoral or good or bad on the basis of moral laws. This division is superficial. At depth, humanity is differentiated into the sick and soul, those being healed and those healed. All who are not in a state of illumination are sick in soul. It is not only goodwill, good resolve, moral practice, and devotion to the orthodox tradition which make an orthodox, but also purification, illumination, and deification. These stages of healing are the purpose of the mystical life of the church as the liturgical texts bear witness." End quote from John Romanides. Chapter 1, Section 2, Theology as a Therapeutic Science From what has been said so far, it is clear that Christianity is principally a science which cures that is to say, a psychotherapeutic method and treatment. The, sh the same should be said of theology. It is not a philosophy, but mainly a therapeutic treatment. Orthodox theology shows clearly that on the one hand, it is a fruit of therapy, and on the other hand, it points the way to therapy. In other words, only those who have been cured and have attained communion with God are theologians, and they alone can show Christians the true way to reach the place of cure. So theology is both a fruit and a method of therapy. Here we need to enlarge on what has been said in order to see these truths more clearly. We shall cite teachings of the Holy Fathers relating to theology and theologians. I think that we should begin with St. Gregory Nazianzen, for it was not by chance that the Church gave him the title of the theologian. In the beginning of his famous theological texts, he writes that it is not for everyone to theologize, to speak about God because the subject is not so cheap and low. This work is not for all men, but for those who have been examined and are past masters in the vision of God and who have previously been purified in soul and body, or at least are being purified. Only those who have passed from praxis to theoria, from purification to illumination, can speak about God. And when is this? It is when we are free from all external defilement or disturbance and when that which rules within us is not confused with vexations or erring images. Therefore the saint advises, for it is necessary to be truly at ease to know God. Nihilus, the ascetic, links theology with prayer, principally with noetic prayer. We know very well from the teachings of the Holy Fathers that anyone who has, that anyone who has acquired the grace of prayer of the heart has entered the first stages of the vision of God for this type of prayer is a form of theoria. Therefore, all who pray with the noose have communion with God, and this communion is man's spiritual knowledge of God. St. Nilos says, if you are a theologian, you will pray truly, and if you pray truly, you are a theologian. St. John Climacus introduces true theology in many places in his spiritually del delightful ladder. Total purity is the foundation of th for theology. 
When a man's senses are perfectly united to God, then what God has said is somehow mysteriously clarified. But where there is no union of this kind, then it is extremely difficult to speak about God. On the contrary, the man who does not actually know God speaks about him only in probabilities. Indeed, according to patristic teaching, it is very bad to speak in conjectures about God because it leads a person to, to delusion. This saint knows how the theology of demons develops in us. In vainglorious hearts which have not been previously purified by the operation of the Holy Spirit, the unclean demons give us lessons in the interpretation of Scripture. Therefore, a slave of passion should not dabble in theology. The saints received divine things without thought, and according to the fathers they theologized, not in an Aristotelian way through thinking, but in the manner of the apostles, that is to say, through the operation of the Holy Spirit. If a person has not been cleansed of passions, especially fantasy, beforehand, he is unable to converse with God or to speak about God, since a noose forming notions is incapable of theology. The saints lived a theology written by the Spirit. We find the same teaching in the works of St. Maximus the Confessor. When a person lives by practical philosophy, which is repentance and cleansing from passions, he advances in moral understanding. When he experiences theoria, he advances in spiritual knowledge. In the first case, he can discriminate between virtues and vices. The second case, theoria, leads the participant to the inner qualities of incorporeal and corporeal things. St. Maximus goes on to say that man is granted the grace of theology when carried on wings of love. In theoria, and with the help of the Holy Spirit, he discerns, as far as this is possible for the human noose, the qualities of God. Theology, the knowledge of God, is unfolded to the person who has attained theoria. Indeed, in another place, the same father says that a person who always concentrates on the inner life not only becomes restrained, long-suffering, kind, and humble, but he will also be able to contemplate, theologize, and pray. Here, too, theology is closely connected with theoria and prayer. It must be emphasized that a theology that is not the result of purification, that is, of praxis, is demonic. According to St. Maximus, knowledge without praxis is the demon's theology. St. Thalassios, who had the same perspective, wrote that when man's noose begins with simple faith, it will eventually attain a theology that transcends the noose and that is characterized by unremitting faith of the highest type and the vision of the invisible. Theology is beyond logic. It is a revelation of God to man, and the fathers define it as theoria. Here too, the theology is chiefly vision of God. In another place, the same saint wrote that genuine love gives birth to spiritual knowledge, and this is succeeded by the desire of all desires, the grace of theology. In the teachings of St. Diodocus of Photiki, theology is presented as the greatest gift offered to man by the Holy Spirit. All God's gifts of grace are flawless, but the gift which inflames our heart and moves it to the love of His goodness more than any other is theology. For theology, as the early offspring of God's grace, bestows on the soul the greatest gifts. According to the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit gives spiritual knowledge to one person and wisdom to another. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 8. Interpreting this, St. Diodocus says that spiritual knowledge unites man to God but does not move him to express outwardly what he knows. There are monks who love Hezekiah 
and are illuminated by the grace of God, yet do not speak about God. Wisdom is one of the rarest gifts, one which God gives to the person who has both expression and a capacious intellect. Therefore, knowledge of God comes through prayer, deep stillness, and complete detachment, while wisdom comes through humble meditation on Holy Scripture, and above all, through grace given by God. The gift of theology is a work of the Holy Spirit, but in cooperation with man, since the Holy Spirit does not actualize in man a spiritual knowledge of the mysteries, apart from that faculty in which, a faculty in him which naturally searches out such knowledge. In the teaching of St. Gregory Palamas, it is those who see God who are properly theologians, and theology is theoria. For there is a knowledge about God and his doctrines, a theoria which we call theology. Anyone who, without knowledge and experience of matters of faith, offers teaching about them, according to his own reasonings, trying with words to show the good that transcends all words, has plainly lost all sense, and in his folly he has become an enemy of God. Moreover, there are cases in which people without having works, that is to say, without having undergone purification, have met and listened to holy men, but then they try to form their own conceptions, and both reject the holy man and puff themselves up with pride. All these things show that theology is properly the fruit of man's healing and not a rational discipline. Only a person who has been purified, or at least is being purified, can be initiated into the ineffable mysteries and great truths, can receive revelations, and afterwards convey them to the people. Therefore, in the orthodox patristic tradition, theology is linked and identified with the spiritual father, and the spiritual father is the theolo theo theologian Theologian, excuse me, par excellence, that is to say, the one who experiences the things of God and so can lead his spiritual children unerringly. Father John Romandini's writes characteristically, the true Orthodox theologian is the one who has direct knowledge of some of God's energies through illumination or knows them more through vision, or he knows them indirectly through prophets, apostles, and saints, or through scripture the writings of the fathers, and the decisions and acts of the ecumenical and local councils. The theologian is the one who through this direct or mediated spiritual knowledge and vision knows clearly how to distinguish between the actions of God and those of creatures, and especially the works of the devil and the demons. Without the gift of discernment of spirits, it is not possible to test spirits to see whether something is the action of the Holy Spirit or of the devil and the demons. Therefore, a theologian and the spiritual father are the same thing. A person who thinks and talks in search of a conceptual understanding of the doctrines of the faith after the Franco-Latin pattern certainly is not a spiritual father, nor can he be called a theologian in the proper sense of the word. Theology is not abstract knowledge or practice like logic, mathematics, astronomy, and chemistry, but on the contrary it has a polemic character like logistics and medicine. The former is concerned with matters of defense, an attack through bodily drill and strategies for the deployment of weapons, fortifications, and defensive and offensive schemes, while the latter is fighting against mental and physical illnesses for the sake of health and the means of restoring health. A theologian who is not acquainted with the methods of the enemy, nor with perfection in Christ, is not only unable to struggle against the enemy for his own perfection, but is also in no position to guide and heal others. It is like being called a general, or even being one, without ever having been trained or fought, or studied the art of war, 
having only given attention to the beautiful, glorious appearance of the army in its splendid bright uniforms at receptions and displays. It is like a butcher posing as a surgeon or like holding the position of a physician without knowing the causes of illnesses or the methods of curing them or the state of health to which the patient should be restored. Excerpts from Father John Romanini's Dogmatic and Symbolic Theology in Greek. End of chapter 1, section 2. Chapter 1, section 3, What Therapy Is. Since we have said that Christianity and the theology are primarily a therapeutic science, we must now outline briefly what therapy is. What does orthodoxy with its theology and worship cure in us? Therapy of the soul essentially means therapy and freeing of the noose. Human nature became sick through its fall away from God. This sickness is mainly the captivity and fall of the noose. The ancestral sin is that man withdrew from God, lost divine grace, and this resulted in blindness, darkness, and the death of the noose. We can say more accurately that the fall of man or the state of having inherited sin is a the failure of his noetic power to function soundly or even to function at all, b the confusion of this power with the functions of the brain and of the body in general, and c its resulting subjection to mental anguish and to the surrounding conditions. Every person has experience of the fall of his own noetic power to varying degrees, as he is exposed to an environment in which this power is not functioning or is below par. Malfunctioning of the noetic power results in bad relations between man and God and between people. It also results in the individuals making use of both God and fallen man to, to fortify his personal safety and happiness. Excerpt from Father John Romanides, Jesus Christ, the life of the world. Returning to the text, this loss of the grace of God deadened man's noose. His whole nature sickened, and he handed this sickness on to his descendants as well. In Orthodox teaching, this is how we understand the inheritance of sin. The fathers interpret St. Paul's as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners from Romans chapter 5 verse 19 not in legal terms but medically that is to say human nature became sick Saint Cyril of Alexandria interprets the situation thus after Adam fell by sin and sank into corruption at once impure pleasures rushed in and the law of the jungle sprang up in our members so nature became sick with sin through the disobedience of one Adam. Then the many became sinners, not as fellow transgressors with Adam, for they did not even exist, but as being of that nature which had fallen under the law of sin. Human nature in Adam became sick through the corruption of disobedience, and thus the passions entered into it. In another place, the same father uses the image of the root. Death came to the whole human race by Adam, just as when the root of a plant is injured, all the young shoots that come from it must wither. St. Gregory Palamas says characteristically, the noose which has rebelled against God becomes either bestial or demonic, and having rebelled against the laws of nature, lusts after what belongs to others. Through the rite of birth in God, holy baptism, man's noose is illuminated, freed from slavery to sin and the devil, and is united with God. That is why baptism is called illumination. 
But after that, because of sin, the noose is again darkened and deadened. The patristic writings make it clear that every sin and every passion deadens the noose. St. John of the Latter writes that the evil demons strive to darken our spirit, especially the demon of unchastity by darkening our minds which guide us, pushes people to do things that only the mad would think of. In another chapter, attention will be given to the nature of man's noose. Here we are mainly concerned with the subject of darkening. St. Maximus teaches, As the world of the body consists of things, so the world of the noose consists of conceptual images. And as the body fornicates with the body of a woman, so the noose, forming a picture of its own body, fornicates with the conceptual image of a woman. This is the darkness and fall of the noose. In another connection, the same Holy Father teaches that when the body sends through material things and has the bodily virtues to teach itself restraint, so too, so too when the noose sends through impassioned conceptual images, it has the virtues of the soul to instruct it. This truth shows that the fall of the noose creates confusion in the whole spiritual organism. It creates anguish and agitation and in general makes the person live the fall in all its tragicalness. Thus many problems which plague us come from this inner sickness. That is why the psychotherapists cannot help very much, since it is only Christ who can restore the noose deadened by passions. Again, St. Maximus, trying to define more clearly what is the impurity of the noose and hence its fall, writes that it consists in four things. First, in having false knowledge. Secondly, in being ignorant of any of the universals. Thirdly, in having impassioned thoughts. And fourthly, in assenting to sin. So the noose needs therapy, a therapy which the fathers call quickening and purifying the noose. A great deal is said about purity of mind and heart in the teachings of the Lord and the apostles. The Lord, referring to the Pharisees of his time who were careful, careful of external purity and neglected inner purity, said, Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, that the outside of them may be clean also. Matthew 23, verse 26. At the apostles' meeting in Jerusalem, Peter, confronting the problem of the Christian Gentiles as to whether they must first be circumcised and keep the law of the Old Testament, said, God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Acts chapter 15, verse 8. The Apostle Paul recommended to the Christians of the Corinth, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. 2 Corinthians 7, 1. The blood of Christ shall purge your conscience from dead works. Hebrews 9, 14. Likewise, the same apostle writing to his disciple Timothy affirms that we hold the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. 1 Timothy 3, 9. And the Apostle Peter is well aware that love for one another is the fruit of a pure heart. So he says, love one another fervently with a pure heart. 1 Peter 1.22 So, purification of the noose and heart is essential. We write about the noose and the heart even though we know that in patristic theology, these two are joined together. We shall come back to that, however, in another chapter. St. Maximus divides the spiritual life into three stages. They are practical philosophy, natural theoria, and mystical theology. According to a study of St. Maximus, 
His teaching about a personal approach to salvation is divided into three basic parts. One, practical philosophy or praxis. Two, natural theoria or simply theoria. And three, mystical theology or simply theology. The first purifies a person of passions and adorns him with virtues. The second illuminates his noose with true knowledge. And the third crowns him with the highest mystical experience, which St. Maximus calls ecstasy. These three parts constitute the basic stages on path of man's personal salvation. Indeed, it must be noted that many fathers distinguish these three stages in the spiritual life, practical philosophy or purification of the heart, natural theoria or illumination of the noose, and mystical theology or communion with God through theoria. According to another division, which appears in the patristic writings, the spiritual life is separated into praxis and theoria. This is not a distinction clearly opposed to the preceding one, but really the same thing. For praxis is purification, and theoria is illumination of the noose and communion with God. In any case, praxis precedes theoria, the vision of God. Praxis is the patron of theoria. More analytically, praxis where the body is concerned consists of fasting and vigil, where the mouth is concerned it consists of psalmody, but prayer is better than psalmody, and silence more valuable than speech. In the case of the hands, praxis is what they do uncomplainingly, and theoria is the noose's vision. It is to be amazed and to, be, and to understand all that has been and is to be. Certainly, according to St. Maximus's teachings, Theoria is not independent of praxis. Praxis is not safe without theoria, nor is, nor is theoria true without praxis, for praxis must be intelligent and theoria must be effic efficacious. Maximus does, does emphasize that in the case of the more learned, theoria precedes praxis, whereas with simpler people, praxis comes first. In both cases, however, the outcome is good, they lead to the same result, the purification and salvation of man. Actually, when we speak of purifying the soul, we mean principally releasing it from the passions, or rather transforming the passions. Furthermore, purification is also the uniform development of the human being, which leads to illumination of the noose. So purification is not only negative, but also positive. The qualities of a pure soul are intelligence devoid of envy, ambition free from malice and unceasing love for the Lord of glory. In other words, if we are motivated by envy and our ambition contains malice and our love for God is not unceasing, it means that our heart has not yet been purified. The noose is that which is in the image of God. We have defiled this image with sin and it must now be cleansed. Therefore, Abba Dorotheus requests, let us make our image pure as we received it. We shall have to suffer toil and intolerable bitterness until we have purified our noose. That curse sniffing around the meat market and reveling in the uproar. If a man struggles not to commit sin and battles against passionate thoughts, he is humiliated and shattered in the, in the fight. But the sufferings of combat purify him little by little and bring him back to the natural state. Yet beside man's effort, if the Holy Spirit does not descend, the dead noose cannot be purified and brought to life because only the Holy Spirit can purify the noose. In any case, when, 
through the working together of divine grace and the human will, the noose has been purified, then it is illuminated, since where there is purifying, there is illumination. After purification, if a person guards his noose from defilement by sin, his noose is illuminated and, and is illuminating. That is why guarding the noose can be called light-producing, lightning-producing, light-giving, and fire-bearing. Briefly, we can affirm that man's cure is in fact purification of the noose, heart, and image, the restoration of the noose to its primordial and original beauty, and something more, his communion with God. When he becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit, we say that the cure has succeeded. Those cured are the saints of God. End of chapter 1, section 3. Chapter 1, section 4, Method of Therapy, Therapeutic Treatment. Having seen what Christianity is, what the character of Orthodox theology is, what therapy is, we shall now look at the method of therapeutic treatment, which is the method of the Orthodox faith. If we have so far located the problem, we must now do our best to make an inventory of the methods for achieving purity of heart, that is, the cure. For there is no great point in listing the higher states unless we go on to bring them to awareness and apply them. How then is the soul cured? First we must emphasize right faith. We Orthodox attach great importance to preserving the faith just because we know that when faith is distorted, the cure is automatically distorted. We have previously emphasized that theology should be interpreted as medicine. Medical science has the healthy person in view when it tries to guide the sick person to health by various therapeutic methods. We can say the same thing about theology. Theology is the teaching of the church about spiritual health, but also about the path which we sick must follow in order to be healed. That is why we Orthodox give great weight to keeping the doctrine intact, not only because we fear the impairment of a teaching, but because we could lose the possibility of a cure and therefore of salvation. Furthermore, the conflict between Palamas and Barlam was not so much about the type of doctrine as about its methodolo methodological foundation. Barlam based himself on metaphysics and metaphysical epistemology and logic, while Palamas took as his basis, basis empirical verification and confirmation and their demonstrable results. Now, in order to be cured, it is essential to feel that one is ill. When a sick person is not aware of his illness, he cannot turn to a doctor. Self-knowledge is one of the first steps to a cure. St. Maximus teaches, The person who has come to know the weakness of human nature has gained experience of divine power, and he is eager to achieve some things and has achieved other things through this divine power. Peter of Damascus describing the great value of prayer at night says practice of the moral virtues is effectuated by meditating on what what has happened during the day when we meditate on the lapses that occurred in the confusion of the day so that during the stillness of the night we can become aware of the sins we have committed and can grieve over them only when we know our state can we grieve about it it is an indisputable fact that most Christians today are unaware of their spiritual condition. We are dead in trespasses, and not only do not perceive it, but even have the feeling that we are filled with the gifts of the Holy Spirit, adorned with virtues. Unfortunately, this self-satisfaction, which plagues us, 
is destroying the work of salvation. How can Christ speak to a person who justifies himself? We are like the Pharisee in the time of the Lord who did not feel the need of a physician. How can the, the great gift of repentance and mourning unfold in a heart which does not feel its desolation when the inner life is unable to develop? In connection with the sense of being ill, there should also be self-condemnation, that is, the great gift of self-reproach. It shows that there is humility in the soul since self-reproach is always associated with humility. This self-reproach reproach is a spiritual burden which, when placed upon the soul, crushes and presses and squeezes out the salutary wine that rejoices the heart of man, that is, our inner man. Compunction is such a wine. Self-reproach, with the mourning which characterizes it, also crushes the passions and fills the heart with most blissful joy. We must always condemn and criticize ourselves in order that by means of deliberately chosen humiliations we may protect ourselves from unwitting sin. But the sense of being ill is not enough in itself. In any case, a therapist is required as well. This therapist is the priest, the spiritual father. He has first been cured of his own ailments, or at least is struggling to, to be cured, and then he also cures his spiritual children. We have said before that the spiritual father must be a theologian and vice versa. So in this case, the saying applies, Physician, heal yourself. Luke chapter 4.23 One who has come through the devil's devices can safely guide his spiritual children. One who has come to know the great treasure called spiritual health can help others too to be cured. Anyone who has found his noose can help others too to find it. The truly physician-like noose is one that first heals itself and then heals others of the diseases of which it has been cured. Many contemporary Christians regard priests as ministers of the Most High and as church officials who are helpful in various bureaucratic dealings, who perform the different sacraments when they are needed or celebrate the divine liturgy, and in this way can satisfy the need of their souls and fulfill a traditional duty. They are regarded as magicians who work magic. We know, however, that the grace of God is not transmitted magically or mechanically, but sacramentally. It is true that even an unworthy priest performs sacraments, but he cannot cure. For remission of sins is one thing, but curing is another. Most Christians are satisfied with a formal confession or formal attendance at the liturgy or even with a formal communion and nothing more. They do not proceed to the cure of their souls. But the priests, the spiritual fathers, not only celebrate communion, but they cure people. They have a sound knowledge of the path of healing from passions and they make it known to their spiritual children. They show them how they can be freed from captivity, how their noose can be, will be freed from slavery. Here is how the Holy Fathers view spiritual fatherhood. The pastor is also a physician. A physician is one whose body and soul are sound, needing no plasters on them. St. John of the Latter is very characteristic on what the priest should do in order to give healing. O wondrous man, acquire plasters, potions, razors, eye salves, sponges, instruments for bloodletting and cauterization, ointments, sleeping droughts, a knife, bandages, and something against nausea, disgust at the stench of the wounds. If we do not put these things to use, how are we to practice our science? There is no way because physicians receive payment not for words but for deeds. A plaster is a cure for passions which are external, that is, bodily passions. A potion is a cure for inner passions and to drain off invisible uncleanness. 
A razor is humiliation which bites, but purifies the rod of conceit. An eye salve is for the cleansing of the eye of the soul, which has been clouded by anger. An eye salve is a caustic chastisement which speedily brings healing. Bloodletting is a draining of unseen stench. Again, the bloodletting instrument is preeminently an intensive and brief remedy for the salvation of the sick. A sponge is used after the bloodletting to heal and refresh the patient with the gentle, meek, and tender words of the physician. Cauterization is a rule and a penance given with love to the sinner for a definite period of time for his repentance. An ointment is the soothing offered to the patient with a few words or some small consolation after cauterization. A sleeping drought is that we lift the person's burden and through an obedience give him rest and waking sleep and holy blindness to his own virtues. Bandages are for binding and strengthening those who are, who are enervated and enfeebled by vainglory. The last instrument is the knife, which is a sentence and a decree to cut off a putrid member and a body dead in soul, lest he, lest he spread his contagion, con contagious among the rest. Blessed and praiseworthy are the non-disgust of the physicians and the dispassion among shepherds. The former, not suffering from nausea, untiringly strive to dispel the stench. The latter will be able to restore to life every dead soul. Father John Romanides writes, The successful repetition of the experience of confirmation, which is medical and patristic science, is cure, is the truth of every science. Just as it is absurd to say that one who does not cure and does not know how to cure is a physician, so it is senseless to regard as a theologian one who is not at least in the state of illumination, who does not know what illumination and deification are, and who does not know how these things are achieved and therefore does not cure. Father John also writes, It is assumed that above all others, the therapists who guide the sick into these stages of therapy are the bishops and the priests, the former having mostly come from monasticism. Today, however, after a century and a half of catastrophic neo-Hellenic propaganda against hesychism, such clergy are rare. There are few hesychist monks. The priesthood, as described by Dionysius the Aeropikite, has almost disappeared. The therapist-priest also recommends to his spiritual children an orthodox way, which is a way of orthodox devotion. Therefore, in what follows, we want to turn to that point to describe the method which the sick person should follow under the guidance of his spiritual father in order to attain spiritual healing. We want particularly to point to asceticism, the forceful practice of self-control and love, patience and stillness will destroy the passions hidden within us. Nicetus Stathatos, disciple of St. Simeon the New Theologian, describes this ascetic practice. Man has five senses, so the ascetic practices are five in number. Vigils, study, prayer, self-control, and hezekiah. The ascetic should combine the five senses with these five practices. Sight with vigils, hearing with study, smell with prayer, taste with self-control, and touch with hezekiah. When he succeeds in making these links, he quickly purifies the noose of his soul and by this refining makes it dispassionate and clear-sighted. We can say briefly that to practice asceticism is to, to apply God's law to keep his commandments. The effort which we make to subordinate the will of man to the will of God and to be changed by this is called ascesis. 
we are well aware from the teaching of our Holy Fathers that the whole gospel consists of precepts of salvation. What is contained in scripture is God's commandment, which must be kept by those who seek their salvation. This is seen clearly in the Beatitudes of the Holy Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Blessed are the poor in spirit is the Lord's commandment, that we should look for our spiritual poverty, that is, that we should experience our wretchedness. Blessed are those who mourn is the Lord's commandment to weep over the passions which we have in us over our desolation. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness is the Lord's commandment to hunger and thirst after communion with God. Blessed are the pure in heart is Christ's commandment to purify our hearts. When he says blessed, it is as if he said become poor, mourning, thirsting for righteousness, and so forth. So Christ's commandments is unceasing prayer, celebration of the divine liturgy, watchfulness, that is attention of the noose, purity of heart, and so forth. The law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. Romans 7.12 John the Evangelist, the disciple of love, emphasizes to the Christians, Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. 1 John 2, 3-5 The same evangelist emphasizes authoritatively, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. 1 John 5, 3 The aim of our hierarchy is to make us as much like God as possible and to unite us to him. But scripture teaches us that we will only attain this through the most loving observ observance of the commandments and the performance of divine services, according to St. Dionysius the Areopagite. St. Gregory Palamas teaches that knowledge of created things comes from doing virtuous deeds. And when asked what is the aim of virtuous deeds, he writes, union with God and becoming like him. Doing virtuous deeds is connected with keeping the commandments. This Hezekiah saint remarks further that love for God comes only through the sacred performance of the divine commandments. In what follows, I would like to mention some sayings of the fathers about the value of God's commandments. The whole purpose of the Savior's commandments is to free the noose from, from dissipation and hatred. From St. Maximus the Confessor. God's commandments excel all the treasures of the world. A man who has gained inward possession of them finds the Lord in them. St. Isaac the Syrian. The keeping of God's commandments generates dispassion. The soul's dispassion preserves spiritual knowledge. Obedience to God's commandment is the resurrection of the dead. St. Gregory of Sinai, describing the two basic ways of operation of the Holy Spirit, which we receive secretly in holy baptism, regards keeping the commandments as one of them. The more we keep the commandments, the more manifestly the Holy Spirit sheds its brilliant light on us. All these things show how essential the ascetic life is for healing and restoring the soul. And, as we have said, this ascetic life is primarily the keeping of the commandments of Christ the Savior. The basic commandments which affect our spiritual healing, as we also say in the tropario that we sing in the church, are fastings, vigils, and prayer. If almsgiving heals the soul's insensitive power and prayer purifies the noose, fasting withers sensual desire, and thus the whole soul is offered to God healed. Fasting also humbles the body. Privation of food mortifies the body of the monk. From the sayings of the Desert Fathers, Yet excessive fasting not only weakens the body, 
but makes the contemplative faculty of the soul dejected and disinclined to concentrate. St. John of the Latter speaks characteristically of fasting. To fast is to do violence to nature. It is to do away with whatever pleases the palate. Fasting ends lust, roots out bad thoughts, frees one from evil dreams. Fasting makes for purity of prayer an enlightened soul, a watchful mind, deliverance from blindness. Fasting is the door of compunction, humble sighing, joyful contrition, and the end to chatter, an occasion for stillness, a custodian of obedience, a lightening of sleep, health of the body, an agent of dispassion, a remission of sins, the gate, indeed, the delight of paradise. From St. John of the Latter, Step 14. All these things which he mentions, on the one hand, show the scope of fasting, and on the other hand, indicate the fruits which it brings to the striving soul. That is why all the saints loved fasting. It is very important to mention that when a person begins to repent, he also begins to fast of his own accord, which shows that fasting goes with prayer and repentance. To be sure, fasting is a means and not an end. It is a tool for training those who desire self-restraint, but without it, it is almost impossible to conquer the passions and to attain dispassion. St. John of the Latter is clear about this. As the Hebrews freed themselves from Pharaoh and experienced the Passover after eating bitter herbs and unleavened bread, so we too will be freed from the inner Pharaoh through fasting and humility. You must not fool yourself. You, you will not escape from Pharaoh, and you will not see the heavenly Passover unless you constantly eat bitter herbs and unleavened bread, the bitter herbs of toil and hard fasting, and the unleavened bread of a mind made humble. It is essential that we keep the fasts with the, which the church has fixed and strive not to give fullest satisfaction to the demands of the flesh. Apart from fasting, another means of healing is the vigil. Through keeping vigils, which is also an ascetic method for therapy, a, per, a person is purified and healed of passions. The Lord taught us how to pray at night. He himself spent whole nights on the mountain. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. And when evening had come, he was alone there. Matthew 14:23. The Holy Fathers experienced in their lives the beneficial effects of vigils. St. Isaac says in his ascetic writings, A monk who perseveres in vigil with a discerning noose will not seem to be clad with flesh, for this is truly the work of the angelic estate. A soul which labors and excels in the practice of vigils will have the eyes of cherubim, that she may at all times gaze upon and espy celestial visions. St. John of the Latter, with all his characteristic delicacy, presents the model of a wakeful monk and the benefits of vigils. Alertness keeps the mind clean. Somnolence binds the soul. The alert monk does battle with fornication, but the sleepy one gives life, gives to life, gives to live with it. Alertness is a quenching of lust, deliverance from fantasies, a tearful eye, a heart made soft and gentle, thoughts restrained, food digested, passions tamed, spirits subdued, tongue controlled, idle imaginings banished. The vigilant monk is a fisher of thoughts, and in the quiet of the night, he can easily observe and catch them. Prayer, too, goes with vigil. This is the method par excellence which heals the diseases of the soul, for much grace comes to the soul of man through prayer. But we shall deal with noetic prayer and the method we use in order to free the noose and see God when we come to the chapter entitled, Hezekiah as a Method of Therapy. This is because we regard it as the most important means for the salvation of man. 
There are also other therapeutic means for curing every passion of the soul, but we shall deal with them at length in the later chapter entitled Orthodox Pathology. Perhaps the reader is thinking that all these therapeutic means, which are salves for the eye of the heart, Revelations 3.18, can only be practiced by monks. This certainly is not true. Everyone, even we who live in the world, can live by the commandments of Christ. Prayer, repentance, mourning, compunction, fasting, vigil, and so on are commandments of Christ, which means that everyone can live by them. Christ did not say things that are impossible for man. St. Gregory Palamas, speaking about purity of the heart, emphasizes that it is possible even for those living a married life to pursue this purity, but with very great difficulty. Everyone can develop a life according to the gospel by making the corresponding adjustment. Moreover, if there is a bishop and a divine liturgy, it means that salvation is possible. Why does the church exist and function? What is more, there is an appropriate application of Christ's commandments for each person. In patristic literature, we have such cases. The fathers who have themselves been healed have acquired the grace of discernment and they advise each person to find his path, which is essentially the path of the Orthodox tradition. St. John of the Latter is characteristic on this point. He tells of having seen a stupid physician dishonor and drive to despair a sick man who was contrite and humble in spirit. At the same time, he had seen another intelligent spiritual physician operate on an arrogant heart with the knife of dishonor and thereby drain it of all the evil smell. He also says that he saw the same sick man sometimes treating his uncleanness with the medicine of obedience and sometimes healing the sick eye of his soul with stillness and silence. Here it seems clear that the same sick man needed obedience at one time and stillness and silence at another. The appropriate medicines must be given at the appropriate time. A discerning confessor, the same saint also says, one man's medicine can be another man's poison. What is more, the same preparation for the same sick person can at one time be medicine and at another time poison. When given at a suitable time, it serves as a medicine, but at the wrong time, it is a poison. Therefore, we emphasize once more that a discriminating orthodox therapist, physician confessor is essential for adjusting the medication and giving the appropriate therapeutic guidance. In what follows, I would like to quote some sayings of the Desert Fathers in which it is clearly apparent that there is a variety in ascetic practice and great possibility for adjustment. Someone asked St. Anthony, what must one do in order to please God? And he answered, Wherever you go, have God before your eyes. Whatever you do and say, have the scripture as, a, as your witness. And whatever place you are in, do not move away quickly. Keep these three and you will be saved. Another father asked, Abba Nisterios, what good work is there that I could do? And he answered, Are not all actions equal? Scripture says that Abraham was hospitable and God was with him. David was humble and God was with him. Elias loved interior and peace and God was with him. So do whatever your soul desires according to God and guard your heart. Joseph, Joseph of Thebes says, Three works are approved in the eyes of the Lord. The first, when a man is ill and temptations fall upon him, if he welcomes them with gratitude. Secondly, when someone carries out all his works purely in the presence of God, having no regard for anything human. In the third place, when someone remains in submission to a spiritual father in complete renunciation of his own will. This last will gain a, a lofty crown indeed. And then he accentuates, as for me, I have chosen illness. Likewise, 
Abba Pimon said, If three men are in the same place, and one of them fully preserves interior peace, and the second gives thanks, thanks to God in illness, and the third serves with a pure mind, these three are doing the same work. From all these examples, it seems that men's struggle is a common one, but their ways of struggling vary. All have to keep the word of God, God's commandments. All must guard the purity of their hearts, wherever they're working. Nevertheless, there is a variety of applications which, which the spiritual father can make. It may well be regarded as a shortcoming that we have not also listed Holy Communion within therapeutic treatment, but we must underline and lay great stress on the fact that we regard the Eucharist, the communion of the body and blood of Christ, as indispensable for man. The Lord emphasized, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. John 6.53 But it is well known that Holy Communion is preceded by purification and preparation. If the therapy about which we are speaking here does not come first, then the receiving of the body and blood of Christ is unto judgment and condemnation. Ecclesiology and eschatology cannot be understood without therapeutic training. So we are not undervaluing the Holy Eucharist, but by emphasizing the value of ascetic practice and therapy, we are exalting the great gift of the Holy Eucharist. On the other hand, the aim of what we have written is mainly to make clear the precise path which ends at the altar, so that Holy Communion may become light and life. I hope that these few words have shown clearly that Christianity is a therapeutic science. It heals sick man. This sickness is made evident in the noose. The church, with its teaching, worship, ascesis, and sacraments, frees the noose and makes it a temple of the Holy Spirit. This therapeutic way has been applied and confirmed by all the saints. It is the only path which leads to God. I think that, I think that the loss of the tradition is to be seen chiefly in the loss of the therapeutic method and of actual therapists. The way back to the Orthodox tradition is essentially the way back to these two foundations. Chapter 2, The Orthodox Therapist So far I hope we have established the truth that Christianity is mainly a therapeutic science. It is seeking the spiritual healing of man. Yet the right practice of medicine requires a good physician, a professional physician, and this applies to spiritual healing as well. There has to be a good doctor. He is the bishop and the priest. As we have noted before, people today feel that the priest's function is to enable them to take part in the holy sacraments. They feel that he has been commanded by God as his servant and deacon so that they may confess their sins and have spiritual relief. They feel him to be the deacon of God, called to pray to him that their labors may be blessed and so forth. Certainly no one can deny that the priest will do such a work as well. But usually people seem to regard the priest rather as a magician, if I may be forgiven this expression. For when we look at the life of worship apart from curing, then rather it is magic. We repeat, however, in order to make it clear that the priest is properly a spiritual physician who cures people's sicknesses. Worship and sacraments must be placed within the therapeutic method and treatment. Even as a confessor, the priest is mainly a therapist. The sacrament of confession is not simply a formal absolution, especially of the Western type, as if God were angry and demanded expiation. It is something more. It is part of the therapeutic treatment. There are numerous Christians who make confession over a period of many years, but are not healed of their spiritual ills. Ignorance on the part of both the people and the pastors contributes to this. The task of the bishop, 
priest or confessor is to lead the people out of Egypt into the promised land like another Moses. This guidance requires toil and labor, privation and anguish. It is mainly therapeutic supervision. The fathers of the church are very insistent upon this truth. Let us take St. John the latter as an example. He advises that those of us who wish to get away from Egypt and the Pharaoh need an intermediary with God to stand between praxis and theoria and to stretch out his arms to God, that those led by him may cross the sea of sin and put to flight the Amalek of the passions. The saint goes on to say that those who rely on their own powers and claim to have no need of a guide are deceiving themselves. From the Old Testament story we know what Moses endured and how he guided that stiff-necked people. This spiritual Moses is a physician. Furthermore, all of us are sick and have need of therapy and a physician. St. Simeon, the new theologian, speaking to monks, makes this truth clear. As we know from the Orthodox tradition, the monasteries are properly hospitals. It would be better to claim that they're medical schools. As sick people, we are cured, and after that, we learn how to cure. That is why the early church took priests from the monasteries, which are medical schools, to place them at the observation post of the bishop. So in speaking to monks, St. Simeon does not hesitate to say that we are all poor and needy. He then tells how all of us who are in the cells are injured and affected by different illnesses. Therefore we can do nothing but cry out day and night for the doctor of souls and bodies to heal our wounded hearts and to give us spiritual health. The saint writes, and that is not all. Apart from being poor and naked, we lie pitifully wounded, affected with various illnesses, or move with difficulty in our cells or monasteries, as if in so many hospitals and homes for the aged. We cry out and groan and weep and call upon him who is the physician of souls and bodies, at least in so far as we are aware of the pains of our, of our wounds and ailments. For there are those who do not even know that they have a disease or an ailment, that he should come and cure our wounded hearts and give health to our souls that lie in the bed of sin and of death. For all of us have sinned, as the Holy Apostle said, and we have need of his mercy and grace. We have quoted this whole text because the mission of monasticism and the church, as well as the work of the pastors, is shown clearly. It is chiefly a therapeutic task. We are sick in the bed of sin and of death. Any who do not sense this truth are mad. So the Christians who do not remain in the church in order to be healed or who, or feel, or who feel that they are well are mad. According to St. Simeon, the new theologian, the priest is a physician. A person comes to the spiritual doctor ravaged with passion, his mind all distraught. The expert doctor who is human and compassionate, understands his brother's weakness, the inflammation caused by the ailment, the tumor. He seeks, he sees the sick person wholly in the power of death. Then the saint describes the way in which the spiritual and expert physician approaches the sickness and how it is to be cured. We have previously mentioned two basic images which characterize the pastor's work. That he is a Moses who leads his spiritual children and he is at the same time both a scientist and a sympathetic physician. Both these qualities are contained in one of St. Simeon's poems describing his own healing by his spiritual father, his personal Moses.
he applies to his life the journey of the Israelite people and the guidance by Moses. He writes, He came down and found me to be a slave and a stranger, and he said, Come, my child, I will take you towards God. He asked his Moses for assurances that he could do such a thing. He brought me close, he clasped me tight, and again he kissed me with a holy kiss, and there was a scent of immortality about him, all about him. I believed I loved to go with him, and I longed to serve him alone. He took me by the hand and walked before me, and in this way we began to travel the road. And after a long journey in which, through the interventions of his spiritual father, he has succeeded in confronting the passions and being freed from slavery to them, St. Simeon begs his spiritual father, Come, I said, my lord, I will not part from you. I will not dis disobey your commands, but I will keep them all. However, in order for a person to be an orthodox therapist and cure the spiritual ills of his spiritual children, he himself must previously have been healed as far as possible. He must stand in the middle between praxis and theoria. How can one heal without having previously been healed or without having tasted the beginning of healing? Therefore, St. Simeon accuses those who regard themselves as spiritual directors before being imbued with the Holy Spirit, rashly receiving others' confessions and daring to rule monasteries or occupy other positions of authority, pushing themselves forward shamelessly by a thousand intrigues to be made metropolitans or bishops to guide the Lord's people before they have seen the bridegroom in the bridal chamber and become sons of light and sons of the day. All this has been put matchlessly by St. Gregory the Theologian who writes, It is necessary first to be purified, then to purify, to be made wise, then to make wise, to become light, then to enlighten, to approach God, then to bring others to him, to be sanctified, then to sanctify. St. John Chrysostom, who has been hailed as an expert on the priesthood, writes in a famous pas passage in which he seeks to justify his refusal to be made a bishop, that he is aware of the weakness and smallness of his soul as well as the importance and difficulty of guiding the people. I know how weak and puny my own soul is. I know the importance of that ministry and the great difficulty of it. In his discussion with St. Basil, he asks him to have no doubt about what he has said, that while he loves Christ, he is afraid of provoking scandal by taking up the spiritual ministry, since the infirmity of my spirit makes me unfit for this ministry. The great purity of his thoughts and feelings caused him to feel that the weakness of his soul made him unfit for this great ministry. For indeed, as will be observed later, unhealed passions present a priest from healing, from helping to heal his spiritual children. If the therapist has not previously been cured, he is commonplace. They simply take commonplace men and put them in charge of those things. All these truths to which we have already referred point to the great truth that the priests who wish to cure the illnesses of the people must themselves have previously been cured of these illnesses, or at least have begun to be cured, and must feel the value and possibility of healing. What is to follow will also be placed in this context. We should make it quite clear that we are not planning to look at the whole spectrum of the priesthood or the role of the priests. It is not our purpose to explain the value and importance of the priesthood, 
but to look at this great and responsible office from the point of view that it is a therapeutic science whose main work is to cure man. If at some points we seem to be trying to underline the, underline the value of the priesthood, we do it solely in order to look at this side which we wish to emphasize here. Chapter 2, Section 1, Prerequisites for the Role of the Priest-Therapist It is the Holy Spirit, and in more general terms, the grace of the Holy Trinity which accomplishes the cure of the sick Christians. The priest is a servant of this cure. The whole organization of the Church is divine human. Moreover, the grace of God works secretly in the priest, and he knows from experiences this hidden action of the grace of God. The Value of the Priesthood the value of the priesthood is great. St. John Chrysostom writes, The work of the priesthood is done on earth, but it is ranked among heavenly ordinances. Since it was not ordained by man, angel, archangel, or other created power, but by the paraclete himself. As the sun excels the stars, so does the celebration by the priest ex excel all psalmody and prayer, and differ from all, the, all, all other services. This is because through the sacrament of the Eucharist we offer the only begotten himself who was slain for our sins. If one celebrates properly the divine, revered, and awesome mysteries, the benefit derived from this will be greater than that which one derives from any work or from theoria. The value of the priesthood, which can sacrifice the fatted calf, is due to the fact that it helps man to go from the image of God to the likeness of God. It can guide him towards deification, which is in fact the healing of man, or rather manifests this healing. The fathers, comparing the priesthood with many other kinds of work, consider it greater because other offices help man to solve worldly problems, while the priesthood leads him to deification. Therefore, the priesthood is higher even than a kingdom, since the one governs divine things and the other governs earthly things. Indeed, as we have emphasized, in pastoral work, the priesthood is the priesthood of Christ himself. The priests minister this grace upon the people and therefore are able to forgive and heal the sins of men. We have said only a few things about the value of the priesthood, for it was not our purpose in this chapter to emphasize the great value of that work. The Calling and Ordaining of the Apostles The Lord calls those suitable for this work and grants them his priesthood. Thus the first bishops were the apostles. The Lord called them to the apostolic rank, had them with him for three whole years, then gave them the Holy Spirit to forgive sins, and sent them to preach to all nations and to guide people. He made them fishers of men and preachers of the gospel. This choosing and sending them out is what made them apostles. We have no evidence in Holy Scripture that the Lord used a special ceremony to confer the priestly service on the apostles. We can say, however, that the Lord, being himself the one who instituted the sacraments, was not bound by them, but was able to make them effective through a simple expression of his will. At all events, the fact is that the calling of the twelve apostles by Christ, his appearing to them after the resurrection, the gift of grace to forgive sins, and the coming of the paraclete on the day of Pentecost, established them as shepherds for the people of God. We also have the case of the Apostle Paul, who was not a disciple of Christ in Christ's lifetime, but he too was called to be the apostolic rank. He himself considered himself to be Jesus Christ's apostle. Quote Paul 
an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Timothy 1.1 Indeed, he writes elsewhere, For I claim to have done no less than the very greatest of the apostles. 2 Corinthians 11.5 In another place, the same apostle writes, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength. By calling me into his service, he has judged me trustworthy. 1 Timothy 1.12 He has the certainty that he was a genuine witness of the resurrection because while on the road to Damascus he saw the risen Christ. Therefore, in recording the appearances of the risen Christ, he makes bold to claim, Last of all, I too saw him, like the last child that comes to birth unexpectedly. 1 Corinthians 15.8 He counts himself among the witnesses of the resurrection. The appearance of Christ to Paul not only conferred on him the rank of apostle, but represented his ordination into the priesthood of Christ. Professor Romanides writes, According to the Apostle Paul, the prophets in a parish, 1 Corinthians 14.29, are those who, like the apostles, 1 Corinthians 15.5-8, have attained deification, the vision of Christ and the glory of the Holy Trinity. Paul clearly emphasizes this when he writes about the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Ephesians 3.5 It is within this context that the saying, introductory to the listing of the members of the body of Christ, is to be understood. If one member is, is honored, all the members rejoice with him. Or if one member is glorified, all the members rejoice with him. 1 Corinthians 12.26 that is to say, the glorified member is deified and made a prophet by God. This is why the Apostle, in enumerating the various members of Christ's body, begins with the Apostles and prophets and ends with those speaking in tongues and interpreting them. 1 Corinthians 12.28, which are the forms of noetic worship. Ephesians 5, verse 19 and following. One who prophesies in Paul's terms is one who interprets the Old Testament, the New Testament did not yet exist, on the basis of the experience of the noetic prayer, which is called different kinds of tongues. By contrast, the prophet is one who has attained deification. This is precisely the, the, the later patristic distinction between theolo theo theologizing and theology. All those from the apostle down to the person prophesying and interpreting had varieties of tongues, that is to say, different kinds of worship of the Holy Spirit within their heart. They were therefore called by God to be members of the body of Christ and temples of the Holy Spirit. Being called by God, they differed from the uninformed who had not yet received the anointing of the visitation of the Holy Spirit praying unceasingly in their hearts, and so had not yet been become temples of the Holy Spirit. They had apparently been baptized with water for the remission of sins, but not baptized by the Spirit that is chrismated. Properly, the sacrament of anointing with chrism was done to confirm that the Holy Spirit had come to pray within them, and therefore it came to be called confirmatio in Latin. The deified apostles and prophets and illuminated teachers, together with those possessing gifts of miracles, healing, helps, administration, or varieties of tongues, 1 Corinthians 12.28, 
apparently all constituted the anointed clergy and the royal priesthood, as the services of holy chrism indicates. The rest, as the fathers testify, were the lay people, those whom God has appointed in the church. 1 Corinthians 12.28 clearly refers to those who have received the visitation of the Holy Spirit with deification of, of the apostles and prophets and illumination of the rest, and not only through a liturgical act. Chapter 2, Section 1, The Basic Prerequisites for Ordination It is certain that the apostles transmitted this priesthood of Christ through a definite sacrament called the Sacrament of Holy Orders. The Church also fixed the canonical prerequisites for anyone to receive this great grace and to exercise this highest function. One such ordination is that of the deacons in the First Church of Jerusalem. After they chose the seven deacons, writes the book of Acts, they set them before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. Acts 6.6 6. Here we have the laying on of hands and prayer. St. John Chrysostom, analyzing this passage, writes, He does not tell in what way it was done, but that they were ordained with prayer. For this is the meaning of the laying on of hands. The hand is laid upon the man, but the whole work is of God. What must be noted in this case is that they were chosen by the whole body of Christians of the First Church. Several qualifications were set up. The basic qualification was that they received the Holy Spirit. Concerning the choice of Stephen, we read in the Acts of the Apostles, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit. Acts 6.5 Thus they not only received the Holy Spirit at the time of ordination, but they had the grace of the Holy Spirit. Interpreting this, St. John Chrysostom says that he had the grace of the Holy Spirit from the laver of baptism. This grace alone was not enough, but ordination by the laying on of hands was also needed so that there was a further access of the Spirit. He also says that Stephen received more grace than the other deacons, for through the ordination was common to him and to them, yet he drew upon himself greater grace. This was due to his greater purity and the presence in him of the Holy Spirit. This shows beyond doubt that the candidates for this great office of the priesthood do not simply wait for the day of their ordination in, in order to receive the Holy Spirit, but they must previously have opened themselves to the Holy Spirit. The Church makes a great point of this. We also see this in the pastoral letters of the Apostle Paul. He writes to Timothy, when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, am I, and I am persuaded, is in you also, 2 Timothy 1.5. We know very well that the faith is not an abstract teaching, but it is an understanding and a vision of the heart. It is the life of the Holy Spirit in our soul. The Apostle also writes to his disciple Timothy, whom he himself had ordained a bishop. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which has been given to you by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery, 1 Timothy 4.14. Elsewhere he writes, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you. St. Theophylactos offers this interpretation. The rank of the priesthood, which concerns the instruction and protection of the people, being great and high, requires that the candidate be given approval from above by God. For this reason also, in olden times, 
Those who became priests and bishops did so by divine prophecies, that is to say, by the Holy Spirit. Much preparation and many prerequisites are involved in the selection of priests and bishops for that great office. The Apostle exhorts, If a man is blameless, let him be appointed priest or bishop. He also recommends that such a person should not be a novice. 1 Timothy 3.6 Not a novice because he must have previous spiritual experience and thus have been baptized to that great office. He must have been purified himself, as we shall later see, and only then may he proceed to ordination. Indeed, St. John Chrysostom writes that a priest has to have more attentiveness and spiritual strength even than the hermits themselves. For if the hermits, who are freed from the city, the marketplace, and its people, are not secure in the spirit, how much more strength and vigor needs to be exercised by the priest in order to be able to snatch his soul away from all infection and keep its spiritual beauty inviolate. That is why he affirms that the clergy who live in the world need even more purity than the monks. This theme of safeguarding the purity of the priesthood will engage us later. Here, we wish rather to emphasize the qualities which the, the Christian should have if, if he is to be ordained a priest. For if he himself has not been healed, how will he be able to heal the spiritually sick and weak? Preparation for the priesthood is one of the do dominant themes in the works of St. Simeon the New Theologian. Anyone who has not abandoned the world and been counted worthy to receive the Holy Spirit, as were the holy apostles, who has not undergone purification and illumination and been found worthy to contemplate the unapproachable light, such a man would not dare to accept the priesthood and the authority over souls or to push himself to accept such. We find the same teaching in, in St. Theognostos. If the priest, he says, has not been assured by the Holy Spirit that he is an acceptable intermediary between God and man, he should not presumptuously dare to celebrate the awesome and most holy mysteries. When ordination was imminent, the fathers fled to the mountains, as we see in the life and teaching of St. Gregory the Theologian. In his defense of the flight to Pontos, he seeks to defend this action and says that no one can undertake to shepherd the spiritual flock unless he has previously become a temple of the living God, a habitation of Christ in the Spirit, or unless he has tra transversed by experience and contemplation all the titles and powers of Christ and learned the hidden wisdom of God in a mystery, that is to say, if he's a, still a babe fed with milk. Certainly, the Holy Fathers were not unaware of the fact that many were ordained without fulfilling these ideals and were neither purified nor healed. Therefore, many of the ordinations originated not from divine grace, but from human ambition. And indeed, it is well known, saying of St. John Chrysostom, that God does not ordain all, but he works through all. Chapter 2, Section 1, The Three Degrees of Priesthood. From a study of the sources, chiefly patristic literature, it seems clear that the degrees of the priesthood, deacon, priest, and bishop, are closely connected with the three basic degrees of the spiritual life. This means that as a man progressed in healing, he ascended the spiritual ladder of priestly grace and blessing. At least this is the teachings of the fathers. We must develop further this fundamental point of patristic teaching by speaking about the healing grace of the priesthood. In the preceding chapter, we emphasize that the spiritual life is divided into three stages, purification, illumination, and deification. 
We find this division in many of the fathers, even though they give it different names. For example, St. Nicetus Stethatos writes that there are three stages of advancement towards perfection. The initial purifying stage, the intermediate illuminating stage, and finally the mystical perfecting stage. As the Christian advances through these stages, he grows in Christ. The purifying work is to subdue the flesh and avoid any sin that excites passion. It gives rise to repentance, tears, and so on. The illuminating stage sees the beginning of dispassion, which is characterized by insight, contemplation of the inner principles of creation, and communion of the Holy Spirit. Its task is purification of the intellect, uncovering the eyes of the heart, and revelation of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And the mystical and perfecting stage enables the person to search the hidden mysteries of God, fills him with the fellowship of the Spirit, and shows him to be a wise theologian in the midst of the great church, and so on. Thus a person living in the church and aided by divine grace purifies the passable part of his soul, then his noose is illuminated and he ascends to mystical theology, blessed deification. In the theology of St. Maximus the Confessor, these three stages are expressed as practical philosophy, negative and positive purification, that is, natural theoria, illumination of the noose, and mystical theology, or deification, theosis. The fathers of the Church have withdrawn from all creatures, ascend to the vision of God, and this vision or theoria reaches its highest degree in th theological science or theological mystagogy or mystical theology which is also called unforgettable spiritual knowledge. So the fathers living in theoria, vision of God, are the real theologians or even the real theology since theology fills their whole existence. Moses, according to St. Maximus, was a theologian because he pitched his tent outside the camp that is, when he established his will and mind outside the world of visible things, he began to worship God. The three chosen disciples were also proven to be theologians on Mount Tabor when they were granted to see the light of the trisolar divinity. St. Paul too, who was caught up to the third heaven, was a theologian. St. Maximus explains that the three heavens correspond to the three degrees of man's mystical ascent, namely practical philosophy, natural theoria, and mystical theology. We have presented this patristic teaching in order to go on to correlate it with the subject which concerns us in this chapter. St. Maximus links the three stages of the spiritual life with the three stages, or three degrees, that is, of the priesthood. He writes, He who anoints his noose for spiritual contest and drives all impassioned thoughts out of it has the quality of a deacon. He who illuminates his noose with the knowledge of created beings and utterly destroys false knowledge has the quality of a priest. And he who perfects his noose with the holy myrrh of the knowledge and worship of the Holy Trinity has the qualities of a bishop. I would now like to compare with what we have just read another interpretation, namely that of St. Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain, since it is the basic since it is basic to the practice of the church that one saint interprets another saint, and thus through its saints the church finds expression for its common experience. St. Nicodemus writes the God-inspired Maximus sees it as the deacon's task to cleanse others of their passions and evil thoughts through moral effort, that of the priest to illuminate others through natural theoria of the inner principles of things, 
and finally that of the bishop to perfect others in the light of the inner principles of theology. Thus the chief priest does not have to be only a moral and natural or contemplative philosopher, but also a theologian, as these roles belong to the deacon and the priest. It should be noted that the connection of the three degrees of the priesthood with the three stages of the spiritual life is mentioned in the writings of St. Dionysius the Areopagite, which contained the tradition of the Church. And if these writings are taken to represent the norm of the Church in the first centuries, it seems clear that the three stages of the spiritual life must correspond to the three degrees of the priesthood. I should like to take this up in order to show this connection. It is well known that in, the, in his work, The Ecclesiastical Hierarchy, St. Dionysios the Areopagite describes the three stages of the spiritual life, purification, illumination, and perfection. Perfection is equivalent to deification. The order of bishops is that which fully possesses the power of consecration. Its task is not only to consecrate, but to perfect. The priestly order is illuminative, illuminative bringing light, while the task of the deacons is to purify and, and to discern the imperfect. The work of the clergy is liturgical and sanctifying and perfecting, since it is through the sacraments that the spiritual life of man develops. In other words, the sacred rites of the church are not forms, but they purify, illuminate, and raise man to a state of, spirit, of, of perfection. Thus, the work of the deacons, priests, and bishops is connected with the spiritual growth of the Christians. According to the baptismal service as presented by St. Dionysius, and we believe that he is reflecting the usage in the first centuries of the church, when a person is brought for baptism, the deacons divest him of his garments. This shows their role in the church as purifying. The priests anoint the candidate's whole body. This shows their role in the church as illuminators. And the bishops bring the candidate to perfection by baptizing him. This shows their perfecting role. The order of bishops performs every hierarchic consecration clearly teaches others to understand, explaining the sacred things, proportionate characteristics, and their holy powers. The priestly order guides the initiates to the divine visions of the sacraments and sends to the bishop those longing for a full understanding of the divine rites which are being contemplated. Thus the priest illumine, illuminates Christians under the authority of the bishop, but sends on to him those who desire perfection, since the divine order of bishops is the first to behold God. The order of deacons, before leading the candidates to the priest, purifies all who approach by drawing them away from any dalliance with what is evil. It makes them receptive to the ritual vision and communion. It is very significant that according to St. Dionysios, bishops are not solely occupied with perfection, but they illumine and purify as well. Similarly, the priests have the understanding both to illuminate and to purify, while the deacons only know how to purify. Inferiors may not trespass on the functions of their superiors. So the duties of each degree of the church's ministry is strictly regulated and that each order possesses its own science and knowledge of the spiritual life. I think we must place here a characteristic passage in which Dionysius sums up his whole teaching about the work of the three orders. The rank of the sacred ministers is divided in the following manner. Their first power consists in purifying the uninitiated by way of the sacraments. Their middle power is to bring illumination to those whom they have purified. Finally, they have the most marvelous power of all, one which embraces all who commune in God's light. The 
power to perfect these by way of the perfected understanding they have of that to which they have been initiated. As we study the teachings of St. Dionysios, we come to see that each of the three degrees of the priesthood correspond to a stage of the spiritual life. Since the task of the deacon is to purify others of passions, he should himself, prior to ordination, have reached a stage of purification so that he is himself a living exponent of the practical philosophy. Since according to the patristic teachings, it is the priest's task to illuminate others, his ordination presupposes that he has an illuminated noose, which, as we have seen, is a degree of theoria. Thus the priest must remember God unceasingly in prayer, must know spiritual work, be fluent in Holy Scripture, and be able to contemplate the inner principles of all created things. As for the bishop, since his primary task is to perfect the people by the inner principles of theology, he must experience the mystical theology, live in communion with God. This close relationship with God makes him a prophet, a divine initiate capable of mystically imparting the word of truth to the people of God. The form which the ordination of deacons, priests, and bishops takes is equally in in indicative of the spiritual condition which they are assumed to have reached in order to fulfill these essential tasks. For how can people be helped if the helpers have no personal experience of the task which they are to carry out? This applies more especially to the bishop, who is an instrument of grace par excellence, and in every act of episcopal consecration should be directly inspired by God himself. Moses did not confer a clerical consecration on his brother Aaron until God commanded him to do so. He was submissive to God as chief consecrator, merely, merely completing the divine consecration by a hier hieratic rite. Therefore, according to St. Dionysios, who expresses the tradition of the Church, the bishop is the supreme scientist of the spiritual life. He is the one who sees God and has personal experience of deification. Therefore, the divine order of the bishops is the first of those who behold God, yet it is the first and also the last. The bishop is the fruit of deification, and having himself been deified, by grace he helps his fellow Christian along his own journey towards deification. The being and proportion and order of the church's hierarchy are in him, the bishop, divinely perfected and deified, and are then imparted to those below him according to their merit, whereas the sacred deification occurs in him directly from God. Talk of bishop and one is referring to a holy and inspired man, someone who understands all sacred knowledge, someone in whom an entire hierarchy is completely perfected and known. In all sustained effort to reach the one, by the complete death and dissolution of what is opposite to divine union, the bishop is granted the immutable capacity to mold himself completely on the form of the divine. Thus the bishop, as the fruit of purification and illumination, is the God-inspired man who has reached perfection and so is directed by God personally. He is the mouthpiece of truth and the one who sits in the form and place of Christ. We cannot resist referring to a characteristic passage in St. Dionysius which says that divine rays are granted to those who are made most godlike, most suitable for spreading and sharing the light. It is the task of those who see God to reveal to the priests, in proportion to their capacity, the divine visions which they have beheld. Likewise, likewise, it is their task to reveal all that has to do with their hierarchy, since they have received power to give this instruction. This means that it is only after personally perfecting that one can rise to a higher position. 
and the higher position is occupied by a God-inspired person, one who knows God through experience. These were the actual qualifications for Christians to enter the priesthood. They had to go through these three stages for it to be confirmed and certified that they had been cured and were able to cure the Lord's people. These things show precisely that the bishop, priest, and deacon are not only liturgical per persons ordained to perform the sacraments, but they are spiritual physicians who help the people to be purified, to be sanctified, and to advance to communion with God. St. Simeon the New Theologian wrote that a man can proceed to celebrate the liturgy when he celebrates with the conscience of a pure heart in honor of the pure, holy, and immaculate Trinity. If he has seen Christ, if he has received the Spirit, and has been brought to the Father through these two. Entry into the priesthood is thus a pure calling of God, and this calling is not simply an abstract feeling of being called by God to serve the Lord's people, but it is the certitude through one's own transformation that one is able to shepherd the people, and shepherding the people is primarily healing the people. Therefore, without healing, a man cannot reach God, cannot see God, and this vision cannot become a light which will illuminate him rather than a fire that will consume him. St. Theognostos refers to the supramundane grace of the priesthood. If one does not sense this calling from above, that is, if one has not been healed, then the burden is heavy indeed, for it is borne by someone unworthy whose power it exceeds. People often speak of the apostolic tradition and the apostolic succession, implying that this was a succession of laying on of hands. Indeed, no one can deny this reality, but at the same time, it is an incontestable fact that the apostolic succession was not simply a series of laying on of hands, but a tradition of the entire life of the church. The apostles and the then the fathers did not simply transmit the grace of the priesthood, but they transmitted Christ and the whole life of Christ. They engendered. For this reason, the bishop bore and bears the grace of truth. Professor John Romanides observes, The basis of the apostolic tradition and succession was not this laying on of hands, but what accompanied it from generation to generation, the transmission of the tradition of healing, illumination, and deification. The parish council and the provincial council were organized to unite the true therapists, to exclude from the clergy the false prophets who pretended to have charismatic gifts, and to protect the flock from the heretics. The most important part of ordination was the selection and examination of the candidate. This was the basis of the church, especially for selecting a bishop. It was a fundamental principle that he should be chosen from the monks because monasticism is the medical school from which the skillful physicians capable of healing men's sicknesses could come. Callistos Ware, Bishop of Dioclea, writes, one of the twenty principal monasteries, probably referring to the great lava of the holy mountain, alone has nurtured twenty-six patriarchs and one hundred and forty-four bishops. This gives some idea of the importance of Athos to the Orthodox Church. St. Nicodemus of the holy mountain, explaining this holy custom of the Church, writes in the introduction to his handbook of, of counsel, Oh, what happy and golden times were those when the excellent custom prevailed of selecting from the modest order of monks, all except a few laymen chosen because of their surpassing virtue, who were to ascend to the Episcopal throne and entrusting the guardianship of souls to them. 
The minutes of a council in St. Sophia reflect just such a custom. Representatives of the church in Caesarea and Chalcedonia told Pope John's deputy, In the East, if no monk has been produced, there is no bishop nor patriarch. To be sure, in all the history of the church, things have not been so rosy. There have been situations when this truth was lost, and then the people were in the darkness of ignorance. They did not know that there was such a thing as spiritual healing, or how healing took place, because there were not men to teach the way of healing. As early as the 4th century, Isidore of Pelusium was showing how the early pastors differed from those of his time. At that time, he said, pastors died for their sheep, while today they themselves slay the sheep. He goes on to write characteristically, In the old days, lovers of virtue entered the priesthood. Now it is lovers of money. Once they fled from the office because of its magnitude, now they run after it with pleasure. Then they were willing to take pride in their poverty. Now they gladly and greedily hoard up money. Once the divine court of justice was before their eyes, but now it is a thing of indifference. Once men were subject to blows, now they inflict them. Need I continue? The priestly office seems to have changed into a mode of tyranny. Humility has been transformed into arrogance, fasting into luxury, economy into despotism. For as economists, they are not fit to administrate, but as despots, they embezzle. Professor John Romanides, who has dwelt particularly on this subject, writes about the loss of this orthodox tradition. With the passage of time, however, there could not always and everywhere be found deified or even illuminated men for the selection and ordination as bishops and priests. And even if there were such men, the electors would not want them. Many times men who were simply moral and good, but without having the traditional therapeutic education of illumination and deification, have been preferred. Bishops are emerging who in a former period would have been simply laymen, since they do not have the Holy Spirit praying unceasingly in their hearts. This is the way St. Simeon the New Theologian explains matters. St. Simeon instigated a rebellion against the situation which he described, with the result that the healing mission of the Church was restored to a central position in orthodoxy, and the hesychism of the Fathers took hold of the hierarchy once more, as St. Dionysius the Areopagite anticipated. Under the leadership of the hesychism of the Fathers, the Church and the nation survived after the dissolution of the Empire, because the patristic therapeutic training which we have described gave the Church the power to blossom in the hard times of Arab, Frankish, and the Turkish rule. That is to say, the prophets and deified, as deified persons and therapists were like a team of hospital doctors, one of whom, without implying any inequality, was chosen as chairman. The same thing happened among the apostles. Peter had first place, although it was James as bishop of the local church, who presided at the gathering of the apostles in Jerusalem. When parishes began to multiply and no prophet or prophets in the Apostle Paul's sense were to be found, the church had to resolve the problem of whether it was right to ordain as bishops men who were undeified but were illuminated. In the face of this dilemma, the church chose to ordain priests to preside at the parochial meetings. Thus the bishops gradually acquired supervisory responsibility over the presiding parish priests like doctors at medical centers with atten attendants at the head. Because the synod did not find enough doctors to supervise all the hospital centers, it appointed attendants as priests. 
To call the attendant a doctor, that is to call a person who is not deified a bishop, is unrealistic and leads to the dissolution of the therapeutic work of the church. With the passage of time, however, there appeared bishops and priests, neither of whom had even reached the stage of illumination. It was this state of affairs which provoked the revolution brought about by St. Simeon, the new theologian, and the taking over of the hierarchy by the Hesychists, which was not fully achieved until the time of St. Gregory Palamas. Apostolic therapeutic treatment was preserved in the post-apostolic period up to the appearance of Frankish and imperial and neo-Hellenic orthodoxy by the consecration of this apostolic tradition in monasticism. That is, therapeutic training for illumination and deification was transferred from the secular parish, which had become weak, to the monastic parish. At the same time, the metropolitan sees and the bishop, the, the bishops became Bishop, excuse me, the Bishop Oporix became monasteries. That is why St. Sophia was called the great monastery even in the lay tradition. Monasticism became a kind of medical school where the candidates for bishop studied apostolic therapeutics. Parallel with this, parallel with this, it was the task of every secular parish to imitate the monastic parish as best it could, because illumination and deification are indispensable for the healing of all people, since all have a darkened noose. From the doctrinal point of view that there is no difference between secular and monastic parishes with regard to the sacraments offered and the need for healing, the different difference lies in the quantity and quality of success in healing. Chapter 2, Section 2, Rekindling the Spiritual Gift Thus far it has been shown that the priesthood is a great gift given to those who have been healed of passions and are placed in the position of physicians to cure the passions of the people. But the physician needs continual renewal, otherwise he cannot cure men's diseases with new methods. The same applies to some degree in the case of priests. It requires vigilant attention and a great struggle to maintain this gift of the priesthood at all times. The priest bears within him the priesthood of Christ and must keep it undefiled. This has a deep meaning. There are priests who have not been dethroned and consequently can celebrate the liturgy and perform the sacraments by the grace of God. Outwardly their priesthood is unhindered because they have not been condemned by the church, but their priesthood has no power because they defile it by their lives. They can consecrate the gifts, but they themselves cannot be sanctified by them, as Nicholas Cabosila says. Where does this spiritual powerlessness appear? It appears mainly in the fact that they cannot heal and do not know how to heal. To perform the sacraments is of God's grace, which is given in the sacrament of the priesthood. But to cure people's sicknesses is of God's grace, which is given to that person who makes productive the gifts of baptism, who puts to use the kingly gift of grace. This explains why many priests do not know how to heal men's passions and are, are, are unable to do it. They do not know what method to apply. They have no idea of what the heart and noose are, how the noose is taken captive, or how, or how the heart dies. They often regard these teachings as referring only to monks. 
Thus they divide the teachings of Christ and the Fathers into monastic and secular. But no such distinction exists in the teaching of our Orthodox Church. In what follows, we would like to set forth the teaching of the Church through the Apostles and Fathers on the necessity for the priest to nurture the gift of priesthood, to rekindle the grace received at the sacrament of ordination, for otherwise he cannot heal men's spiritual illnesses. Basic Qualities of Priest-Therapists The Apostle Paul advised his disciple Timothy, Do not neglect the gift that is in you, 1 Timothy 4.14. This exhortation is analogous to the exhortation to the Christians, As a fellow worker we urge you not to let the grace you received come to nothing, 2 Corinthians 6.1. And the same Apostle's words, The grace he has shown me has not been without fruit, 1 Corinthians 15.10. He also instructs the Apostle Timothy, That is why I would remind you to fan the flame of that special grace which God kindled in you when my hands were laid upon you. 2 Timothy 1.6 In the pastoral epistles, the Apostle Paul often refers to this subject. The bishop and the clergy in general must, through their struggle to preserve the gift of the priesthood, serve God and men in a worthy manner and guard the sacred heritage. We would like to cite a few of the many characteristic passages. Train yourself for godliness, 1 Timothy 4.7. You will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed, 1 Timothy 4.6. Be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, 1 Timothy 4.12. He requests Timothy to fulfill his charge without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing. 1 Timothy 6.14 He exhorts him to keep the tradition, that good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. 2 Timothy 1.14 This keeping of the tradition must be done through the Holy Spirit who dwells within Timothy. He exhorts him to have watchfulness, attentiveness, vigilant care, to live up to the great calling of God, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, 2 Timothy 4.5. The patristic teachings refer to all the essential qualities which should adorn the priest in order for him to be able to live up to his great task and high calling. In what follows, we shall try to make a selection from those teachings, mainly from St. John Chrysostom and St. Theognostis. The teaching of these two fathers expresses that, that of the Holy Orthodox Church. According to St. Theognostos, the priest must not only be filled with the human traditions, but have the grace of God mystically hidden within him. Make sure that you do not rely only on human traditions in celebrating the divine mysteries, but let God's grace inwardly and invisibly fill you with the knowledge of higher things. The priestly dignity, like the priestly vestments, is full of splendor, but only so long as it is illumined from within by purity of soul. Therefore the priest must guard this divine gift as he would the pupil of his eye and keep its honor unsullied. These things show that great watchfulness is required on the part of the priest, and this requires much suffering. The priest should celebrate the divine liturgy, first of all, on his own behalf, watchfully and sedulously. St. John Chrysostom insists on this constant 
attention to guarding the priestly grace. He says that a priest must be sober and clear-sighted and possess a thousand eyes looking in every direction. He should resemble the many-eyed cherubim in order to worship the Lord of hosts in purity. He should be encircled with walls all around and have intense zeal and constant sobriety of life in order not to be harmed. According to St. John Chrysostom, just as fire requires fuel, so grace requires our alaricity that it may that it may be ever fervent. This grace is in our power to quench or kindle. The grace for presiding over the, or the church is quenched by sloth and carelessness, but is kept alive by watchfulness and diligence. Watchfulness is indispensable for keeping oneself pure and thus for the priestly grace and blessing to remain. According to, to St. Theognostus, the priesthood requires of us an angelic purification and a degree of discretion and self-restraint greater than in our previous life. According to St. John Chrysostom, the priest must be as pure as if he were standing in heaven itself, in the midst of the angelic powers. The priest's soul must be purer than the rays of the sun, in order that the Holy Spirit may never leave him desolate. Repentance is another spiritual quality indispensable for a priest. With streams of tears let him become whiter than snow, and then with a clear conscience let him in holiness touch holy things. The purity of a priest should shine and beam on the Christians. A priest should be pure from passions, especially unchastity and rancor, and should keep his imagination passion-free. Many fathers emphasize that these two passions, unchastity and rancor, should not come near priests, because otherwise the grace of God does not work for the healing of his spiritual children. Then the priest is sick, as we have indicated. He must have committed himself sacrificially to die to the passions and to sensual pleasure. Besides, according to Abba Dorotheus, everything which is offered as a sacrifice to God, whether it be a sheep or a cow or something of the sort, is a victim. He must be wholly consecrated to God. The Gospel, which describes the journey of the Christian struggling to reach communion with God, should be applied first of all by his servant, the priest. The ascetic life of the Church, which we describe in this book, should be known to the pastors of the Church. And when we say known, we do not mean that it should be known in the head, through lectures or reading, but it should be their living experience, for what passes through the heart helps faithful Christians. One person offers his blood for another to be nourished. It is shared out and the people are filled. However, in addition to his purification and repentance, sobriety and watchfulness, the priest must be filled with all the graces of the Spirit, all the virtues. The basic virtue is holy humility, which according to St. Isaac the Syrian is the raiment of divinity, since, since Christ, in order to save man, humbled himself, as the Apostle says. Besides, the Eucharist, which the priest celebrates, shows us this humility of Christ. Through the Eucharist, we may enter into the holy humility and acquire that sacrificial way of life. Therefore, in celebrating the Divine Liturgy, we are not simply looking for the bread and wine to be transformed into the body and blood of Christ, but seeking to acquire Christ's way of life. And thus, and this, is humility. We seek to clothe ourselves in the spirit of the Eucharist, which is self 
emptying. Within this perspective, St. Theognostus advises, humble yourself like a sheep for the slaughter, truly regarding all men as your superiors. Indeed, the same father exhorts characteristically, regard yourself as dust and ashes or as refuse or some cure-like creature. One should perform the priestly service with fear and trembling, and in this way rightly divide the word of truth and work out one's salvation. However, the fathers recognize the actual reality. They are not unaware of the existence of many unworthy priests, without having these essential qualities, dare to minister the holy sacrament. According to St. John Chrysostom, the priesthood, far from covering over man's passions, exposes them, makes them manifest. As fire tests metals, so the touchstone of the ministry distinguishes men's souls. If a man is hot-tempered or conceited or boastful or anything like that, it soon uncovers all his shortcomings and lays them bare. Not only does it lay them bare, but it also makes them more tough and intractable. St. John of the Ladder says that he has seen aged priests mocked by demons. The fathers do not hesitate to expose the punishment of the unworthy priests, those who practice this great office without the proper testing, preparation, and life. This is because, instead of healing the souls of the flock, they tempt them. Isidore of Pelusium writes, Let us not trifle with divine things. St. John Chrysostom says, The priestly office might well accuse us of not handling it rightly. St. Theognostos addresses the incorrigible priest who does not renounce the sacred ministry. Expect to fall into the hands of the living God and experience his wrath. God will not spare you out of compassion. He informs us that many unworthy priests have been snatched away by sudden death and sent to the halls of judgment. He has in mind two examples of unworthy priests with different consequences. There was one who seemed outwardly honorable among men, but nevertheless, within he was licentious and defiled. And so, at the time of the Cherubic hymn, when he was reading, No one is worthy, he suddenly died. The other priest had fallen into the passion of unchastity, therefore he became incurably sick and was near death. When he came to realize his unworthiness and took a vow that he would desist from celebrating the mysteries, he recovered at once so that not even a trace of his illness remained. We have lingered on this topic, though it seemed to be outside the subject of our study, because we wanted particularly to emphasize that the priesthood is the pastoral service to the people. The priest and the bishop have this great honor of serving the people. Serving the people is healing first and foremost. The church does not exist simply to do social work and to serve the social needs of the people, but to guide them to salvation, that is, to the healing of their souls. This work demands many qualities. The priest must be indwelt by the uncreated grace of God. He is not there simply to perform the sacraments, but also in order to be sanctified by them, so that being sanctified he can sanctify men by his being. This work is very high, and therefore St. John Chrysostom declares, I do not think that there are many of the priests who are saved, but many more that perish. This is because the matter requires a great soul. Chapter 2, Section 3, Spiritual Priesthood We have already said that the priest has a double task. One is to perform the sacraments, and the other is to heal people, so that they can worthily approach and receive Holy Communion. We have further pointed out that there are many priests 
who are priests outwardly and perform their function unhindered, but in essence have defiled the priesthood. And that is, and that this is apparent from the fact that they are not able to heal. They perform the sacraments, and the gifts are sanctified through them, but they cannot cure others or save their own souls. On the other hand, there are laymen and monks who do not have the sacramental priesthood, but can heal people because they have spiritual priesthood. We should like to dwell briefly on this point. Through baptism and the effort to keep Christ's commandments, all Christians have put on Christ, and in this way we share the royal, prophetic, and highly priestly office of Christ. This teaching is recorded in the text of the New Testament. In the book of the Revelation, John the Evangelist writes, To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Revelation 1, 5 and following. The Apostle Peter says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. 1 Peter 2, 9. And the Apostle Paul writes to the Christians of Rome, I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Romans 12.1 In many fathers, too, we find this teaching that every person is a priest of Christ in the sense which we defined and will develop further later on. St. John Chrysostom presents Abraham, too, as a priest, because where there is fire, an altar, and a knife, why do you doubt his priesthood? Abraham's sacrifice was twofold. He offered both his only begotten son and the ram, and above all his own will. With the blood of the ram, he sanctified his right hand. With the slaying of the child, which he had decided to do, he sanctified his soul. Thus he was ordained a priest, by the blood of his only begotten, and by the sacrifice of the lamb. Just after this, St. John Chrysostom exhorts his listeners so you too are made king and priest and prophet in the la in the laver, a king having dashed to earth all the deeds of wickedness and slain your sins, a priest in that you offered yourself to God and sacrificed your body and are yourselves being slain also. All the faithful, baptized in the name of the Holy Trinity and living according to the will of the Holy Trinitarian God are priests. They have spiritual priesthood. We prefer the expression spiritual priesthood to other terms like general or lay priesthood because clergy and lay people alike can have this priesthood and because not all the baptized have it but only those who have become the dwelling place of the Holy Trinity. The faithful who have noetic prayer have spiritual priesthood especially those who have reached such, such a degree of grace as to pray for the whole world. This is the spiritual service on behalf of the world. The prayers of these people who sacrifice themselves, praying on behalf of all, sustain the world, and heal men. Therefore, by prayer, they become exorcists, driving out the demons which rule in human societies. This is the great work of those who pray unceasingly for the whole world. St. Gregory of Sinai wrote about this spiritual priesthood, which is also the essential foundation of the sacramental priesthood. As we have said, those of the faithful who were healed and had noetic prayer were chosen to receive the special grace of the priesthood as well. According to St. Gregory, noetic prayer is the mystical liturgy of the mind. A person who possesses the gift of noetic prayer senses the operation of grace within him, which is purifying, illuminating, and mystical. 
All who reach this state are priests. A true sanctuary is a heart that has been freed from evil thoughts and receives the operation of the Spirit, for everything in that heart is said and done spiritually. This passage from the Holy Father prompts me to say that the spiritual priesthood is that which is, is to be consummated in another age, in the kingdom of heaven. Without wishing to dwell on the subject of the ineffaceable or non-sacramental priesthood, we stress the truth that the sacramental priesthood is for the benefit of the laity to serve its needs, while the spiritual priesthood is that which will continue to be celebrated at the heavenly altar in the life to come. All who have spiritual priesthood, all who have spiritual priesthood are true clergy now and forever. This priesthood can include all categories of men and naturally also of women. Therefore, it is not very important that in the Orthodox tradition women cannot receive sacramental priesthood. They have the possibility of being true clergy. Elsewhere, St. Gregory of Sinai is explicit. All devout kings and priests are truly anointed in baptismal renewal, just as those of old were anointed symbolically. The priests of the Old Testament were truly symbols of our truth, but our kingdom and priesthood are not the same in character and form. When a man's noose has been discovered, when he has been freed from his captivity and received the Holy Spirit, it is spiritual priesthood. And then he celebrates a mystical liturgy in the sanctuary of his soul, and partakes of the lamb and the betrothal with God. In this spiritual priesthood, he eats the lamb of God in the spiritual altar of his soul, but at the same time he becomes like the lamb. Thus we understand well that when noetic prayer is working in us, there is an unceasing divine liturgy which nourishes our whole existence. St. Gregory of Sinai writes, The noetic work of the noose is a spiritual liturgy, liturgy like a betrothal before the coming delight, which surpasses all understanding, this liturgy is performed by the noose, which mystically sacrifices the Lamb of God on the altar of the soul and partakes of it. To eat the Lamb of God on the inner altar of the soul means not only to apprehend it or to partake of it, but also to become like it in the future life. Here we enjoy the words of the mysteries, but there we hope to receive their very substance. The same saint also writes that the kingdom of heaven is like a tabernacle fashioned by God for Moses, for in the world to come it too will have two veils, and all the priests of grace will enter the first tabernacle, but only those with only those will enter the second tabernacle, who are henceforth to celebrate in the darkness of theology hierarchically in perfection, having Jesus as the first celebrant and bishop before the face of the Trinity. Therefore, all who have acquired the gift of theology as we have explained it above, that is, all who, after natural theoria, have entered the divine darkness, are themselves priests of God. They constitute this true and spiritual priesthood, and since they are the spiritual priesthood, they can heal the sick. Nicetus Stathatos teaches that if any priest, deacon, or even monk participates in divine grace with all the presuppositions set down by the fathers, he is a true bishop, even if he has not been ordained a bishop by men. On the contrary, anyone who is uninitiated in the spiritual life is falsely named, even if by ordination he is set over all the others in rank and mocks them and behaves arrogantly. Probably 
what we quoted earlier, that all who constitute the spiritual priesthood can heal the sick, was not well received. However, the teaching of St. Simeon the New Theologian on this point is very revealing. The saint writes that the power of binding and loosing sins belonged only to bishops who had received it by succession from the apostles. But when the bishops became good for nothing, this awesome function passed to priests who led a blameless life worthy of the grace of God. When the priests, too, along with the bishops, fell into spiritual error, this function was transmitted to the chosen people of God, namely the monks, not that it was taken away from the priests and bishops, but they estranged themselves from it. According to St. Simeon, the power of binding and loosing sins was not simply given because of their ordination. The laying on of hands only gave the metropolitans and bishops permission to celebrate the Eucharist. The power to remit sins was given only to those of the priests and bishops and monks who could be numbered among the disciples of Christ on account of their purity. We believe that St. Simeon developed this teaching in the first place in order to emphasize that the sacrament of priesthood did not magically transmit the authority to forgive men their sins if one did not have inner spiritual priesthood. Secondly, to show the wretched state of the clergy of that time. Thirdly, to underline the value of the spiritual priesthood, which lies in noetic prayer and vision of God, theoria, and these, unfortunately, then as now, were neglected. And fourthly, because he himself had personal experience of this, his spiritual father, who had not been ordained by a bishop, had the grace of the Holy Spirit and was able to forgive sins. Nevertheless, his spiritual father, Simeon the Pious, did not overlook the sacrament of ordination. St. Simeon the, the New Theologian writes, I know that the grace of binding and loosing sins is given by God to those who are sons by adoption and his holy servants. I too was a disciple of such a father who had not received the laying on of hands on the part of men, but who through the hand of God, that is the Spirit, enrolled me among the disciples and ordered me to receive the laying on of hands by men according to the prescribed form. I who for a long time had been impelled by the Spirit towards such a reality. Having heard the commandments of Christ, he became a partaker of his grace and of his gifts, and received from him the power to bind and loose, kindled by the Holy Spirit. When we speak of remission of sins, we should understand it mainly as the curing of passions. Thus we see clearly today that gifted monks heal us without having sacramental priesthood. Being clear-sighted, they perceive the problem which is troubling us, they give us a remedy and a method of healing, and so we are cured of what was inwardly disturbing us. The existence of such holy men is a comfort for the people. Chapter 2, Section 4, The Search for Therapists We come now to the fourth section of this chapter, which is the search for therapists. Since we have been made aware of the spiritual illness and the great value of the priest therapists, we must search for them in order to be freed from the ulcers in our souls. A really great effort is needed in order to find these true leaders of the people, the doctors of our souls and bodies, since certainly many bodily illnesses are of spiritual origin. In his homily on the New Sunday Gospel, St. Gregory Palamas advises, let every Christian after attending church on Sunday diligently seek someone who, in imitating the apostles who were in the upper room after the crucifixion, 
remains completely enclosed most of the time, desiring to be with the Lord in silent prayer and psalmody as well as in other ways. Let him approach him then, let him enter his house, his house with faith, as a heavenly place, having within it the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. Let him sit with the man who lives there, let him remain with him as long as he can, asking about God and the things of God, learning with humility and appealing for his prayer. Then says the saint, I know that Christ will come to him invisibly and grant inner peace to the pondering of his soul and increase his faith and give him support and in time to come will enroll him in the kingdom of heaven. It is necessary to seek out such a spiritual father. On this point, it is well is well worthwhile to listen to what St. Simeon the New Theologian has to say. Ask God, he says, to show you a man who is able to direct you well, one whom you ought to obey. We should show obedience to the man whom God shows us, mystically in person or outwardly through his servant, and revere him as if he were Christ himself. We should show our dispassionate spiritual father the kind of confidence and love that a sick person shows to his doctor, expecting treatment and healing from him. Rather, we should have even more confidence and love in view of the difference between the soul and the body. Christ himself is present in the spiritual father. He is the mouth of God. Further on, St. Simeon matches the apostle's attitude towards Christ to the attitude which we should have towards our spiritual father, because it, it is in that way that our soul can be healed. As the apostles followed Christ, let us do so also. When people dishonor and pour scorn on our spiritual father, we must not abandon him. And as Peter took his sword and cut off the ear, take the sword and stretch forth your hand and cut off not only the ear, but also the hand and the tongue of him who attempts to speak against your father or touch him. If you deny him, weep like Peter. If you see him crucified, die with him if you can. If that is not possible, do not join with the traitors and evil men. If he is released from imprisonment, return to him again and venerate him with with, more, with the more, like a martyr. If he dies from ill treatment, then boldly seek his body and pay him more honor than when you attended him while he was alive, and so anoint it with perfumes and give it costly burial. It is very characteristic that the spiritual father, the therapist, is put in the place of Christ. St. Simeon also uses a type of prayer in which one asks to find a suitable spiritual guide who will offer us spiritual healing. O Lord, who desireth not the death of a sinner, but that he should return and live, thou who didst come down to earth in order to restore life to those lying dead through sin, in order to make them worthy of seeing thee, the true light as far as that is possible to man, send me a man who knows thee, so that in serving him and subjecting myself to him with all my strength, as to thee, and in doing thy will in his, I may please thee, the only true God, and so that even I, a sinner, may be wor worthy of the kingdom, of thy kingdom. If a Christian prays in this way, God will show him the spiritual father suitable to him, suitable for him, to tend the illnesses and wounds of his soul. Certainly one should not overlook the fact that such therapists, both in St. Simeon's time and today, are rare. He says, in truth, those who have the skill properly to, to direct and heal rational souls are rare, and especially so in the present time. In conclusion, it should be said that it is necessary to seek out and find such scientific doctors, therapists, or even nurses in order to be spiritually healed. There is no other way of healing. God is our true healer, but so are the friends of Christ, 
the saints in whom dwells the Trinitarian God himself.